Restrictions apply. Hey, just a quick note to say, I've had a ball this year, weekend hosting, bringing you the best of NPR and WAMU programming. It's a special privilege and a high honor that I look forward to continuing in 2020. Here's wishing you exactly the new year that you want to have. And hey, that's it. That's all for me. I'm Jeffrey James. Happy New Year. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5 at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City and live at WAMU.org. The big broadcast up next at 7 o'clock. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and as we say goodbye to Christmas and Hanukkah and begin to close out 2019, we'll hear how one radio show from this same week in 1941 tried to rally Americans through comedy in the days just after Pearl Harbor. And speaking of post-Christmas and comedy... We'll feature the misadventures of the Madison High School crowd trying to return Christmas gifts on Our Miss Brooks. And we'll get ready for New Year's Eve with Mr. and Mrs. North as they visit the site of the famous big celebration in Times Square. Plus, Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and with a new movie version of Little Women just released, we'll hear a radio reprise of Katherine Hepburn's performance in the Louisa May Alcott classic. So... Take advantage of this little lull between holidays. Take a little break. Forget about the cares and worries that dogged you leading up to Christmas. Christmas is over. And don't worry about New Year's. It's still a couple of days away. Instead, relax, enjoy the respite, and listen to an adventure called The Blinker Matter. It comes from a warmer time, July 6th, 1958, CBS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Fred Wills, Assurity Mutual Limited, Johnny. Oh, hi, Fred. What's on your mind? At the moment, San Francisco. Oh, nice town to have on your mind. What's new out there? That's what I hope you're going to tell me. What do you mean? Johnny, there's an importer out there named Andrew Foreman. We're carrying a $50,000 policy on his life. So? So have you ever heard of an importer getting exported? I don't get you, Fred. I'm afraid that's what's happened to Foreman. Last night he disappeared. I'm on my way. Bob Bailey and the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And now, Act One of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Home Office Surety Mutual Limited, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Blinker matter. Expense account item one, $178.50, transportation and incidentals to San Francisco. On the flight out, I studied the dope Fred Wills at Sapley. Andrew Foreman, age 51, occupation importer, health good. Judging from the hefty premium he had to pay, his importing business must be okay. 
Wife, Marsha Foreman, age 35, 16 years younger than her husband. And Marsha was the sole beneficiary. My plane landed about 8 in the morning. An hour later, I was at the Foreman's apartment. It was spacious, modern, with a lot of glass and the kind of view of the bay that you had to pay plenty for. Yeah, there was money written all over the place, and Marsha Foreman looked right at home. I'm just having coffee on the terrace, Mr. Dollar. Won't you join me? Oh, thanks. I could use some. Out here. Mm. You've sure got a beautiful view here. Yes. I never get tired of watching the bay, the ships. There's always something going on. Well, here you are. Thanks. What is it, Mr. Dollar? Oh, I'm just looking up the bay. Alcatraz? Yeah. Such a grim-looking place. Yeah, it's a real exclusive club. But I uh, managed to get a couple of new members into it. I don't think I care for the kind of job you have, Mr. Dollar. Trouble wherever you go. Suppose we talk about your troubles. All right. I told the police all I know when I filled out the missing persons report. But I'll go over it again for you. If you don't mind. Your husband disappeared the night before last. Yes, that's right. What time? I'm... I'm not sure. Oh, Around nine o'clock that night, somebody came to see him. Uh, A strange sort of man. How do you mean strange? Well, he was dressed in rough clothes, a a seaman's jacket. He said he was an old friend of my husband's. Did he give you his name, Mrs. Foreman? Only Blinker. Blinker? Yes, he said that's what everybody called him. I guess because he kept blinking his eyes very rapidly. I see. Well, I showed this this blinker person, into the den where my husband was and left the two of them together. Uh A few minutes later, my husband came out and told me he was going to drive Blinker downtown and find him a hotel room. So I went to bed. I was tired and went right to sleep. And? Well, my husband and I have adjoining bedrooms. When I went in to call him yesterday morning, he was gone. The bed, it hadn't been slept in. I called his office thinking he might have decided to work late, but they hadn't seen him. Then you call the police. Yes. Mrs. Foreman, had your husband ever mentioned this man Blinker before? No, I'm quite certain he hadn't. Can you describe him? Well, uh, he... He wasn't above medium height. Age, oh, maybe in the 40s. A scar on his right cheek, a thin nose, and dark, rather beady eyes. I'm afraid that's the best I can do. Well, considering that you only got a brief look at him, I'd say that was a pretty complete description. Mr. Dollar... Do you think this person, Blinker, could have done anything to my husband? I don't know. But I'm sure the police are looking for him. Just one more question, Mrs. Foreman. Suppose Blinker had nothing to do with your husband's disappearance. I... I'm afraid I don't follow you. Oh, well, what I mean is... Can you think of any reason, any reason at all, why your husband might want to disappear? No, Mr. Dollar. Absolutely not. <laughs> Marsha Foreman sounded pretty certain of that last answer. Maybe just a little bit too certain. Expense account item two, a dollar eighty cab fare to the office of an old friend of mine, Detective Lieutenant Scapella. General, if Foreman took this character Blinker to a hotel, it's no hotel we ever heard of. We've covered them all. You think Blinker could have killed Foreman? It's a possibility. What's another? Maybe there is no Blinker. Yeah, Scapella, I thought about that too. General, didn't it hit you there was something strange about Mrs. Foreman's story? She said she let Blinker in the apartment. She showed him to the den. 
Now, she could have only seen him a couple of minutes. Yet she rattled off a complete description of him. Yep. Sure is of me, Scapella, right between the eyes. And the way she described him. Yeah, I know. Seaman's jacket, beady, blinking eyes, scar on the right cheek. Oh, he sounds real distinctive. Real distinctive. Or real faked. Well, the trouble is, smelling a fake's one thing. Proving it's another. What have we got for a motive? For one thing, 50,000 bucks. She was foreman's sole beneficiary. That's interesting. That's real interesting. Excuse me, General. Capella. Oh? Oh, yes. What? I see. Yes, okay. Yes, yes. All right, thanks, Mr. Arnold. John, it looks like we better back up and start all over. What do you mean? That was Wayne Arnold, that's Foreman's attorney. He had a telephone call this morning. From Foreman? No, but from somebody just as interesting. Blinker. Yeah, Blinker. Now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Blinker Matter. Like Scapella said, we had to back up and start all over again. Just when we talked ourselves into thinking Marsha Foreman's story about Blinker was phony, her missing husband's lawyer phoned and told us he just heard from Blinker. Item three, a dollar seventy, cab fare to the office of Wayne Arnold, Foreman's attorney. I met him just coming out his door. Did you wish to see me, Mr. Arnold? Yes. I'm Johnny Dollar. Oh, yes, the insurance investigator. Mrs. Foreman told me you'd been questioning her. Look, I'm sorry, but I'm in rather a hurry. I have an appointment and I'm late for it. Sorry, but this will only take a minute or two. I was in Lieutenant Scapella's office when you phoned a while ago about this man Blinker, Mr. Arnold. Oh, yes. When did you hear from him? Just a little while ago. I called Marcia Foreman right away and she thought I ought to call Scapella. What did Blinker say on the phone? It was a strange conversation. He sounded nervous, excited, almost out of breath. Said he wanted money. $10,000. If he didn't get it, he'd... And that's as far as he got. He stopped suddenly, said he'd contact me later, then hung up. What do you make of it, Mr. Dollar? I don't know. Could be he's holding Foreman for ransom. That's what it sounded like to me. I take it you don't know this blinker. I never heard of him until Marsha told me about him showing up night before last. Okay. Uh, just one more thing, Mr. Arnold. How long have you been Foreman's attorney? Hmm? Three, four years? Why? Any reason you know of why he might want to disappear? None that I can think of. Another woman, maybe? I doubt it very much. How about his importing business? As far as I know, it's in excellent shape. Okay. Thanks, Mr. Arnold. Uh, Mr. Dollar. Yeah? This man Blinker, why would he have it in for Andrew Foreman? Good question, Arnold. Sorry I don't have an answer to it. I went down the elevator and outside. I stopped at the corner to get some cigarettes, and that was my first lucky break. Because just as I was leaving the counter, I saw Arnold come outside. And the way he looked up and down the street made it plain he wanted to see if anybody was watching him. He got into his car and drove off. I grabbed a taxi. That's item four and trailed him. He drove into Golden Gate Park and stopped. I got out down the road and worked my way toward him behind some bushes. Pretty soon, a woman came over and got into his car. I couldn't hear what they were saying, but I didn't need to. Because when I saw the kiss, I got the message. The woman was Marsha Foreman. 
I went back into town and waited for Marsha outside her apartment door. She showed up about half an hour later. Why, why, Mr. Dollar, what is it? Is something wrong? Yeah, something's real wrong, Mrs. Foreman. I want to talk to you. All right. Come in. But I've already told you all I know. The story you told me about this man, Blinker. There's no such person, is there? What? You and Arnold made it up. I know that's not true. What about you and Arnold, Mrs. Foreman? I, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, then tell me, did you enjoy your visit with him in Golden Gate Park an hour ago? Oh, that. Yeah. Well, all right, Mr. Dollar. Wayne Arnold and I have... Well, we've been in love for some time. Did your husband know? I'm not sure. We were trying to find the right time to tell him. I don't think he'd really have cared very much. Oh. My husband and I haven't gotten along very well the last year or two. I guess I really didn't know him when I married him. Mr. Dollar, this has nothing to do with my husband's disappearance. You must believe that. That's so. I didn't make up the story about Blinker. I didn't kill my husband, if that's what you're thinking. Has he been killed? I... I don't know. You, you've got me confused. If you didn't do it, how about Arnold? No. He'd have no reason. Besides, he wasn't even in town the night before last. I can check that. I know you can. <sighs> Mrs. Foreman, maybe you're telling me the truth, and maybe you're not. Sooner or later, I'm going to find out which. I am telling you the truth. Then can you give me any reason at all why your husband has disappeared? There's... There's one possibility, Mr. Dollar... It might have something to do with his importing business. What's that mean? My husband... Well, he seems to have made a lot of money out of his importing business. More than the kind of thing he usually imports with warrants. What does he import? Oh, trinkets, curios. From the Orient, mostly. Have you a key to your husband's office? Yes. Let me have it. I want to take a look around. I went over the papers in Foreman's office and found out his last shipment had come in three days ago on the Indian Princess. Mrs. Foreman had said Blinker was wearing a seaman's jacket. I headed for the waterfront, but the ship was gone. Near the pier was a beat-up eating place called Gus's Cafe. A woman with an apron came over. She was about six feet tall and almost that wide. What can I do for you, buddy? I want to talk to the owner, Gus. That's me. Your Gus? Short for Gussie. What's on your mind, buddy? Johnny, Johnny Dollar. I want some information. You a cop, buddy? No, I'm not a cop. You look like a cop. Now, listen, that freighter that shoved off from this pier, the Indian Princess. Stops there regular. You know any of the sailors from her? Just about all of them. They all come in here. Hey, look, Gussie. Gus. Okay, Gus. You ever happen to hear of a sailor named Blinker? Sure. You know him? Sure. About medium height, scar on the right cheek, blinks his eyes all the time? I said I know him. What do you want, Napa David? Oh, Gussie, you're the most beautiful thing that's happened to me all day. Mm, that's what they all tell me, buddy. But flattery don't get him a thing. Might help you, though. You're kind of cute. Uh, yeah. Look, did Blinker sail on the Indian Princess? Nope. Then where is he? Fact is, I don't know. Blinker's disappeared. And now, Act Three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Blinker Matter. And you don't have any idea where Blinker is now, Gus? Not the slightest, buddy. Oh, great. Then I'm right back where I started from. Blinker was mixed up in something, all right. What do you mean? The Indian princess docked the other night. Blinker come in here for a cup of coffee. That's one thing the sailors around here all miss when they're out to sea. My coffee. There's no one makes 
scoffy like me. Why, there's nobody on the whole yeah, coast. Yeah, yeah, I know. About Blinker now. Well, he seemed pretty pleased with himself. Said he was on to something good. Did he say what he meant by that? No. Just sat there looking pleased with himself. Oh, yeah. He showed me the elephant. Said it was going to make him a lot of money. What elephant? He had a carved elephant about six inches high. Must have picked it up somewhere. Maybe he was going to sell it. I don't know. Hmm. Foreman imported curios from the Orient. His last shipment came in on the Indian Princess. That elephant could have been part of it. Foreman? Who's he? Uh, never mind. Well, I wonder where I go from here. I wonder what I'm going to do with all Blinker's stuff if he don't show up for it. Maybe I'm... Sp- what did you say about Blinker's stuff? What stuff? I got a back room where I let the boys keep their gear when they're ashore. You've got Blinker's things there now? Sure have. Why didn't you tell me? You never asked me. In the back room, I went through Blinker's sea bag. Near the bottom, I found a carved elephant. An ordinary-looking elephant. Until I twisted one of the legs loose. It was hollow. And inside, a little paper packet full of white powder. Suddenly, the whole deal slid into place, and just as suddenly, the whole deal made me slightly sick. Now I wanted to see the rest of those elephants real bad. According to the records in Foreman's office, the shipment was in a warehouse. I went outside, nobody to the pier. Johnny. What? Oh, Gus. Come here a minute, Johnny. Look, look, I'm in a hurry. Thanks for everything. I'll see you later. You've got time to see this. Over here, near the pier. Wait a minute. Yep. The body, all right. One of the boys just fished it out of the water. I sent him to call the cops. Looks like it's been in the water quite a few hours. Gus? Yeah. It's Blinker, all right. I knew I had to work fast now. I headed out on the pier for the warehouse. Once I thought I heard footsteps somewhere behind me. I stopped and listened. There was no sound. dark inside the warehouse, but with the help of matches, I located Foreman's shipment. I took a crowbar and opened one of the crates. It was full of carved elephants. I picked up one of them. Yeah, it had a hollow leg, and the hollow leg was full of the same white powder. I hit the floor fast. The shot had come from over near the door. I eased my gun out and waited. Five, ten minutes went by. I kept quiet. And suddenly a shadow loomed up near the crates. We saw each other at the same time. Oh, my shoulder. Ah, oh, well. The missing man himself, Andrew Foreman. Look, I... I think I found out what you were importing in those carved elephants. He tried to blackmail me. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, sure, sure. You probably told him you'd pay off. That's when you drove him downtown, night before last. Then you tried to kill him, but he must have got away. I tell you... You called your lawyer, tried to put the squeeze on through him. But he had to hang up in a hurry. You were probably getting close. You finally caught up with him, didn't you, Foreman? Look, you've got no proof of anything. Why should Blinker try to blackmail me? Like I say, he found out about the narcotics in those hollow elephants. It was put there without my knowledge. You have no proof I was involved. You know, Foreman, it doesn't much matter... You've got even bigger troubles than that staring you in the face. Uh, I don't understand. Blinker's body has been recovered from the bay. I wouldn't know anything about that. You've got no proof of that either. No. There were two bullet holes in Blinker. 
Five will get you ten. The slugs in them came from this gun of yours. The gun? Yeah. This is something that can be proved. Well? Uh, all right. I just didn't have any choice. Item five, $183 even, transportation and incidentals home. Expense account total, $434.50. Remarks? Andrew Foreman made a complete statement to the police. The murder case against him is open and shut. So, it looks like he's going to beat the narcotics rap after all. The hard way. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Today's story was written by Robert Stanley. Heard in our cast with Paula Winslow, D.J. Thompson, Harry Bartell, Stacey Harris, Vic Perrin, and Bob Bruce. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Roy Rowan speaking. <laughs> From 4th of July weekend in 1958, The Blinker Matter, from yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5, I'm Murray Horwitz. Hey, how did you do on Christmas? Did Santa bring you what you'd wished for? Or maybe you got a present that was less than what you wanted. If so, you're smack in the throes of that old dilemma, to return it or not to return it. If you celebrate Hanukkah, the odds are pretty good. You had eight chances to get something that you want to exchange. Well, that's the dilemma that Connie Brooks has to face in an episode from less than a week after Christmas in 1950. It refers to Connie's romantic obsession with Mr. Boynton, and it mentions an old laundry appliance they used to press sheets, a mangle. The show comes from CBS and Our Miss Brooks. Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay and Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair bring you Our Miss Brooks starring Eve Arden. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks under the direction of Al Lewis. Well, the schools have been closed during the Christmas vacation. And our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, has spent hers quite enjoyably. Yes, indeed. During the days preceding Christmas, there was the thrill of wondering what kind of gifts I'd receive. Then, in the days following, there's been the thrill of wondering what I'd get in exchange for the Christmas gifts I receive. <laughs> By last Thursday, though, I had made up my mind and paid a visit to the exchange counter of Sherry's department store. Pardon me, are you in charge here? Yes, ma'am. Dale is the name. Rex Dale. And who might you be? I might be Mrs. Boynton if I keep my New Year's resolution. <laughs> right now, the name is Constance Brooks. Several of my friends have purchased gifts here that I'd like to exchange. I see. 
First of all, there's the plastic monstrosity in this box. <laughs> that doesn't seem quite the way to talk about a gift from a friend, Miss Brooks. This happens to have been presented to me by, by my principal, Mr. Conklin. And believe me, it's terrifying. <laughs> no Christmas present freely given should be referred to as terrifying. Here, I'll open the box for you. There. in the world is it? It's a figure of Atlas carrying a globe. Only the globe is built in the shape of a round house which tells the changes in the weather by a small man and woman who pop out of their respective doors when you least expect them. What's this on the back of the figure? He seems to have a red spine. That's a thermometer. And dangling from the thermometer is a small alarm clock. Oh, <laughs> oh now I recall this item. It must be quite popular. The gentleman who bought it ordered six of them. He said it was given to several members of the faculty. Well, there must be some place you could use it. Mr. Dale, this sort of thing was old-fashioned when Grandma was a girl. Where could it possibly fit in the modern home? Well, let's see. Do you have a fireplace in your living room? Yes, and I thought of the fireplace myself. But plastic doesn't burn very well. <laughs> Thinking of the mantelpiece, couldn't you uh, put it up there? I tried that too, but my landlady keeps a canary in a cage on the mantelpiece. Well, isn't there room for them both? Yes, but I don't believe in being cruel to our feathered friends. <laughs> the first time I put this thing next to the cage, the canary took one look at it and fell head first into his bird bath. <laughs> now, if you don't mind, I'd like to exchange this for some lingerie. Well, if you insist, Miss Brooks, I'll give you this credit slip. Uh, just show it to the clerk in the lingerie department. Oh, before you make it out, there's something else, Mr. Dale. These earrings were purchased here, too. Oh, what's wrong with them? They're a trifle too ornate for me. Oh, nonsense. They're beautiful. Just look at the workmanship in those exquisite brass crowbars. <laughs> I'm afraid they're a little too heavy for me, Mr. Dale. Heavy? Well, let me heft them. All right, I'll put one on the counter. Here. <laughs> yes, they are a bit substantial, aren't they? Substantial? They pull my ears down so far, I look like a cocker spaniel. <laughs> I'll just get a nice manicure set instead. Very well, Miss Brooks. Anything else? Not much. I'd like to exchange this pen and pencil set for some stockings and these slippers for a handbag. Miss Brooks, wasn't there anything you received for Christmas that pleased you? Oh, yes, Mr. Dale. I have a blue and white scarf that I'm just delighted with. And who bought that for you? I did. <laughs> give me those other exchange slips, I'll get the rest of my unshopping done. I don't like to rush you, but Walter Denton, a student of mine, has offered to pick me up in his car in a few minutes. Well, I wouldn't bank on it, Miss Brooks. What do you mean? If he's a student of yours, he's probably exchanged his car for a pogo stick. <laughs> you to interrupt your holiday to give me this lift, Walter. For you, Miss Brooks, my yuletide spirit knows no bounds. <laughs> what kind of yuletide did you have, Walter? Oh, magnificent, Miss Brooks. Oh, you should have seen my house. The spirit of giving was rampant. The gifts for everybody all over the place. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. The Horn of Plenty was really loaded this Christmas. Well, you can't blame your father for relaxing on a holiday. <laughs> you have lots of presents. 
What did you get, Walter? Oh, I got some lovely gifts, Miss Brooks. Didn't you notice anything different about this car when you got in? Let's see. The four fenders are still missing. The hood is still off the motor. The windshield hasn't been replaced yet. Yeah, go on. Something new has definitely been added. The convertible top is still absent. There's only half of a rear-view mirror, and the glass is out of both doors. I can't figure it out, Walter. What's been added? Nylon seat covers. <laughs> Just what this car needed. <laughs> Who gave them to you? Both my mother and father. Together? Yeah, my father gave me a sweater, and my mother gave me a muffler, and I exchanged them. <laughs> Mr. Dale was right. Like teacher, like pupil. What did Harriet Conklin give you? Oh, do you like this plaid sport shirt I've got on? Yes, it's very attractive. Did Harriet get you that? No, but her keychain and 90 cents did. <laughs> well, here we are at your place, Miss Brooks. Safe and... Sound? <laughs> and before you get out, Miss Brooks, would you mind telling me what Mr. Boynton got you for Christmas? I know Harriet was egging him on to get you something real personal and feminine. Oh, he almost got me something extremely personal, but I stopped him in time. Oh, what was he going to get? A stapler. <laughs> he finally settled for a pair of very clever earrings shaped like crowbars, but just between us, I exchanged them for a manicure set. But why? What was wrong with the earrings? I couldn't get them on without a stapler. <laughs> Well, Connie, did you get all your exchanging done? Yes, Mrs. Davis, I got some wonderful things. Good. I'm glad to see you looking so chipper. You seemed pretty blue last night when Mr. Boynton broke a date with you. He couldn't help it, Mrs. Davis. He had to attend a meeting of the biology club. Besides, I enjoyed the movie I saw very much. What did you see, Connie? Born yesterday with Judy Holliday, Broad Crawford, and Bill Holden. Well, if they were all there, you couldn't have missed Mr. Boynton too much. <laughs> Before I forget, Connie, Mr. Conklin called twice while you were out. Mr. Conklin? What did he want? I'm not sure, Connie, but it's about some kind of a report or something. He wants you to help him with it. But this is my vacation. If he calls again, please tell him I'm out. Oh, I'm afraid you'll have to tell him yourself, dear. I'm going out in the garden. One of our crawling vines has tripped over the garage door. <laughs> be home very long anyway. Maybe he won't. Then again, maybe he will. Hello, Mrs. Davis. This is Osgood Conklin again. Has Miss Brooks come in yet? Miss Brooks? There is no Miss Brooks here. This is Main 2496, isn't it? Oui, this is the French and Laundry. Fifi speaking. <laughs> The girl in charge of the mangle. <laughs> Who are you look for, monsieur? I'm looking for a school teacher named Constance Brooks. A school teacher? Ooh la la, have you got the wrong number? <laughs> well, that's a reprieve for a while. Mrs. Davis? Mrs. Davis? Mrs. Davis? Oh, dear, she's out and back. Hello? Hello? 
This is the one question for 1,000 program. We're trying to contact Miss Constance Brooks. What? If Miss Constance Brooks can answer one simple question, we have $1,000 in cold, hard cash waiting to be sent to her. $1,000? This is Miss Brooks. Are you absolutely <laughs> certain you are Miss Brooks? Of course. What's the question? The question is, how could you and the French hand laundry have switched phone numbers so quickly? <laughs> Hello? Get away from that mangle, Fifi. Or I'll really take the starch out of your sail. Hello? Isn't this Mr. Conklin? I guess you must have gotten our party line, sir. I... All right, all right, Miss Brooks. We'll forget your little impractical joke. The reason I called is to thank you for your Christmas gift to me. Oh, it was just a little remembrance, Mr. Conklin. You couldn't have chosen a more perfect reminder, Miss Brooks. Two big, heavy bookends. They, they just seem to sense that we haven't had any personal contact since Christmas. And yesterday, as if by magic, one of them toppled off the table and landed on my foot. <laughs> it was like old time. I'm sorry, Mr. Conklin. If you'd rather have something else, I, I could... I wouldn't part with those bookends if they eat up half my salary in band-aids. <laughs> See, Miss Brooks, in spite of your raffish and undisciplined displays of wit, I feel that you, like myself, are basically a sentimental person. When I receive a present, I feel it's a token of someone's affection, and I wouldn't dream of exchanging it for anything else. I presume you feel the same way? Hello? I mean, certainly, Mr. Conklin By the way, Miss Brooks, how did you like my gift to you? Oh, stunning, Mr. Conklin well, You know, for the longest time I couldn't decide whether to buy something ornamental or utilitarian Then I saw that figure of Atlas And you gave up both ideas <laughs> You combined both ideas Yes, that's about it did you find the right spot for it, Miss Brooks? Perfect, Mr. Conklin. I'm keeping it right on the mantelpiece here in our living room. <coughs> Quiet, Dickie. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad to hear it, Miss Brooks. I'll be able to kill two birds with one stone, then, when you assist me with my report to the Parent-Teachers Association. But, Mr. Conklin, this is my vacation. Uh, it's mine, too, Miss Brooks, but this is for the first important meeting of the new year. So I'll be over to your place in about an hour, at which time I can see how effective my atlas looks in your living room. But, Mr. Conklin, you can't come here. The, the house is a mess. Mrs. Davis is in the midst of her spring cleaning. Spring cleaning? But this is the middle of the winter. I know, but she likes to give herself plenty of time. If you don't believe she's doing her spring cleaning, you can ask her yourself, Mr. Conklin. Mrs. Davis! You, Mrs. Davis! Sorry, sir, she must be out in the kitchen dying Easter eggs. Well, tell her to save me a pink one. I'll be there in an hour. Oh, no. This is a fine spot to be in. Did you call me, Connie? It's too late now, Mrs. Davis. Too late for what? For me to get down to Sherry's and get Mr. Conklin's present back. He's coming over here in an hour to give me some dictation, and he expects to see it on the mantelpiece. Oh, forgive my absent mind, Connie, but there were so many gadgets here around this Christmas that I just don't remember Mr. Conklin's gift. What was it? 
A plastic figure of Atlas with a big globe on his head that tells the weather, and a thermometer spine, and also an alarm clock. Oh, where in the world is the alarm clock? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. down a bit, I realized that Mr. Conklin had perpetrated his Atlas clock on several other members of the faculty. So the only question was, from whom to borrow one? Then Mrs. Davis reminded me that Mr. Boynton had received one, and there was no more question. I had never seen Mr. Boynton's new apartment, and this seemed like as good a time as any. Be right there. Well, Miss Brooks, this is a surprise. Come on in. Thanks, Mr. Boynton. Here, here, let me take your coat. All right. So this is your new apartment. May I look around? Go right ahead. Aren't you coming with me? Well, you don't have to go anywhere. This is all there is to it. (laughs) Please don't mind the appearance of the place. After all, what can you do with a bachelor? There must be a non-censurable answer to that. Don't you find this place a bit confining for a big, husky, broad-shouldered, dashing, vital... I forgot what I started to say. You, you were wondering if I found this apartment confining. Actually, I don't, Miss Brooks. I don't spend very much time in it, but when I'm here, I, I rather like the compactness of it. Of course, it's different with a girl. I, I don't suppose you'd care for a tight squeeze. Try me. <laughs> certainly wouldn't be any problem to keep clean. I'm afraid I don't pay any attention to that end of it. All you'd have to do is wrap yourself in a damp towel, get in the center of the room, and spin around a little. It may be small, but this place has all the facilities of a larger apartment. Did you know that I have a two-burner electric stove in here? Really? Where? I keep it in my bread box. Oh. Oh, in the kitchen. No, there's no kitchen. I just keep the bread box in the refrigerator. I give up. Where's the refrigerator? In the closet. (laughs) Just open that door on your left. All right. I still don't see the refrigerator. Your coat's draped over it. Uh... Well, now that you're here, Miss Brooks, how would you like to stay to lunch? No, thanks, Mr. Boynton. I wouldn't want you to have to unwrap your kitchen just for me. Besides, I've got to be getting back to my place before Mr. Conklin comes to work with me. That's the real reason I dropped over, Mr. Boynton, to borrow the atlas Mr. Conklin gave you. What did you do with the one he gave you? I exchanged it for some lingerie. So did I. What color? (laughs) I mean, what am I going to do? He expects to see that atlas prominently displayed on my mantelpiece. Well, uh, why don't you phone Mr. Conklin and tell him you went out without your keys and Mrs. Davis has left the house, too? I could do that. Then he'd probably suggest that I come over to his place. That wouldn't be so bad. Well, I don't have my phone in yet, Miss Brooks, but right on the corner there's a gas station or a candy store you can call from. I'll use the gas station. I'm on a little bit of a diet. (laughs) Oh, before you go, Miss Brooks, I, I haven't seen you wear the earrings I got you for Christmas as yet. You will put them on for New Year's Eve, won't you? New Year's Eve? Oh, yes. I, I've gotten hold of an extra ticket to the biology club dance. I took it for granted that you'd tag along. Then you can take it for granted that the earrings will drag along with me. <laughs> and while 
we're on the subject of presents, you don't seem to be wearing the cufflinks I gave you. The cufflinks? Oh, well, well, I'm saving those for New Year's Eve, too. Yes, sir. Well, you better run along now and phone Mr. Conklin. I guess we won't be seeing each other again until our date Sunday night. Oh, we'll see each other before that. When? It all depends on what time we both arrive to exchange our exchanges at the exchange counter. <laughs> over to your place, Mr. Conklin. Well, if you've lost your keys and Mrs. Davis is out, I suppose it's the only thing you can do, Miss Brooks. But my wife is having some folks in tonight, so we'll have to finish up at your place after dinner. Yes, sir. That'll give me plenty of time. That is, I'll see you soon, Mr. Conklin. Goodbye. 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 Harriet. Oh, Harriet. Here I am, Daddy. What can I do for you? Do you know what's been done with those two monstrosities that Miss Brooks gave me for Christmas? You mean those two cute bookends? Yes, those cute bookends. <laughs> Two green midgets with purple beards shoving their shoulders against yellow wheels. <laughs> Last time I saw them, your mother was cracking walnuts with them. Gosh, Daddy, Mother told me she exchanged them for a vase. What? But Miss Brooks is coming over here to work. She'll expect to see those twin nightmares on my desk. Well, there's only one thing I'll do. I'll run down to Sherry's and try to get in the back before she comes. It was just wonderful of you to drive me down here again, Walter. I've got to get back the atlas and Mr. Boynton's earrings at once. Oh, that's okay, Miss Brooks. I've got to get back the keychain Harriet gave me. Oh, did she ask you about it? Yeah. She said she expected me to wear it on New Year's Eve. Gosh, I wished I'd had my wits about me. I'd have asked her why she wasn't wearing the pearls I gave her. You gave Harriet pearls, Walter? Certainly not. But I know she's exchanged so many gifts it would have thrown a good scare into her. <laughs> about the keychain, Walter. The shirt you exchanged it for looked lovely on you. Yeah, it did, didn't it? Oh, the thought of exchanging it distresses me deeply. I guess I'm just a sentimentalist at heart, Miss Brooks. A sentimentalist? Yes. When a person near and dear to me gives me a present, I hate to exchange it more than once. <laughs> well, here's the counter. Uh, how do you do, Mr. Dale? Remember me? Now, uh, don't tell me. Let's see. Oh, of course, you were the lovely lady who almost gave me a nervous breakdown this morning. And remember me? Certainly. You gave me a nervous breakdown yesterday. <laughs> oh, look, you two aren't going to start all over again, are you? No, Mr. Dale, this time it's going to be very simple. Oh, good. I'd like to turn in some lingerie and get back my atlas. But this morning you were practically livid about the... That was this morning. Then I'd like to turn in my manicure set and get back my earrings. Yeah, and I'd like to turn in my sports shirt and get back my keychain. I have a dispatch for you both. <laughs> I'd like to turn in this job and get back my sanity. <laughs> I'll make out your exchange slips in just a moment. But first, Miss Brooks, you've got to do me a small favor. What is it? Just stand behind this counter for one moment while I go out for a smoke. I'm beginning to feel my nerves nibbling at the base of my skull like mice. Oh, but Mr. Dale, There won't I... be too many customers at this time of day, but if anyone does come over, just be courteous. By that, I mean be sure to say please when you ask them to drop dead. <laughs> oh, he'll never make a good exchange, clerk. Too sensitive. Well, while we're waiting for him, I'm going to look at some sports equipment over in the next aisle. But you can't leave me behind this counter all alone, Walter. Why not? It might open up a whole new career to you. 
Especially if you don't get Mr. Conklin's atlas back in time. Now listen, Walter, say... I'll see you later, Miss Brooks. And don't forget to say, please... Oh, dandy. This is turning out to be some vacation. Oh, pardon me, miss, but I'd like to swap this pen knife for... Miss Brooks. You can't have Miss Brooks for that pen knife. <laughs> what in the... Mr. Boynton. Oh, I was just going to say blazes. Oh, then go right ahead. What in the blazes are you doing behind this counter? I'm just pinch-hitting for a busy friend. A busy friend? Yes, he's brushing some mice off the base of his skull. <laughs> for you, Mr. Boynton? Well, there, there was something I wanted to exchange for something else, but uh, I'll wait until the regular clerk comes back. But he may never come back. The mice may brush him off. <laughs> Why don't you tell me what it is you want to exchange? Well, no, I couldn't, Miss Brooks. It's, it's rather personal. Well, pardon me, young man. Pardon me. Miss, I'd like to swap this vase for Miss Brooks. You can't have Miss Brooks for that vase. <laughs> Not even if you threw in a penknife. But what in the blazes am I doing behind this counter? Exactly. And you, Boynton, what are you doing here? Well, I have something I'd like to exchange, Mr. Conklin. A deplorable practice exchanging gifts shows an abysmal lack of consideration for those who presented them to you. What are you doing here, Mr. Conklin? Uh, me? Uh, I've just been doing some last-minute shopping. I've never been near this exchange counter since Sherry's opened its doors to the public. Oh, me either, but today well, I Well, just... Miss Brooks, I feel a little better now. Thanks for... Well, what do you know? It's a Madison High reunion. <laughs> oh, then you know these gentlemen, Mr. Dale. Know them. Since Christmas, we've been practically living together. <laughs> I see. This chunky boy with the malignant mustache has been back about nine times. <laughs> But, Mr. Conklin, I thought you didn't believe in exchanging gifts. I, I don't, Miss Brooks. It's just that, well, I was down here with my wife a couple of times. A couple of times? He was here so often I thought he was trying to turn her in. <laughs> That's a hot one. <laughs> well, I'll be running along now. I've got... One moment, Mr. Boynton. Mr. Dale, has this tall gentleman been down here, too? Has he? He's the most insidious type of all. Insidious? He's the sort who expects the Brooklyn Bridge in return for a pair of cufflinks. So, Mr. Boynton, you did exchange the cufflinks I gave you. Well, what are you complaining about? You turned in the atlas he gave you, didn't you? That was the atlas I gave you, Miss Brooks. How could you do it? I hate to see a canary bird with a limp. Anyway, you're a fine one to talk, mustache. You turned in the desk lamp she gave you. Desk lamp? Well, that's what I gave you, Mr. Conklin. Well, what about those earrings that pulled down your ears, Miss Brooks? <laughs> and more important than any of this, what about getting out that report of mine to the Parent Teachers Association? You're right, Mr. Conklin. I'll settle this matter of gifts once and for all, Mr. Dale. I'm going to turn in everything I've received this Christmas for just two presents for these gentlemen. Two presents? Yes. Give Mr. Boynton a cocker spaniel and Mr. Conklin a workhorse. <laughs> returns in just a moment, and here's a New Year's greeting card to each and every one of you in 51, a year of love, happiness, contentment, and joy from the makers of Luster Cream Shampoo. And now, once again, here is Eve Arden. Freedom is everybody's job. That's why all of us must work to keep our individual rights and freedoms by voting in an informed way, serving willingly on juries and public committees, 
and taking an interest in the development of our community, state, and country. That way, we can all make 1951 a year that will prove the strength and success of democracy. And now, on behalf of my sponsor, the Colgate Palmolive Peat Company, and myself, a very happy New Year to all of you. Good night. This is Vern Smith reminding you to tune in next week to another Our Miss Brooks show brought to you by Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, written by Al Lewis and Arthur Allsberg, with the music of Wilbur Hatch. Mr. Boynton is played by Jeff Chandler, Mr. Conklin by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Gloria McMillan, and Joseph Kearns. If you like mysteries that are as full of chuckles as chills, be sure to hear Mr. and Mrs. North every Tuesday over this same network. Don't miss the exciting and laughable adventures of these amateur detectives. Hear Mr. and Mrs. North every Tuesday night. And be with us again next week at this same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. Stay tuned now for Jack Benny. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Our Miss Brooks, exchanging Christmas presents on a broadcast from New Year's Eve in 1950. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We're going to hear an excerpt of the Armed Forces radio program Jubilee that gives us a chance to mark two anniversaries. Today would have been the 99th birthday of Irving Ashby. He was a fine jazz guitarist, and he may be best known as the man who replaced Oscar Moore in Nat King Cole's legendary trio. So Mr. Ashby's birthday today gives us one last opportunity to pay tribute to Mr. Cole, too, in this, his centennial year. Strangely, though, we won't hear them playing together. Among the guests on this Jubilee show are the band leader Jimmy Mundy and his orchestra, and they have a feature number for Irving Ashby called Solo Flight. And after that, Mr. Moore, along with the bassist Johnny Miller, accompany Nat King Cole in two standards, Dorothy Fields and Jimmy McHugh's I'm in the Mood for Love, and the Gershwin Brothers' Somebody Loves Me. From January 17, 1948, here's Irving Ashby performing Solo Flight on Jubilee. And so it goes, nothing but the best of the good, better and more of it. For instance, let's give Irving Ashby out of the Monday orchestra a little something to do. Irving plays real great guitar, so it's about time something was done about it. With Jimmy counting the beats and the measures up front, Irving Ashby gets featured filling on Solo Flight. <laughs> Thank you. 
Cap was Irving Ashby taking his flying saucer up into the blue for a solo flight. Musically speaking, of course. Well, now it's that time again. It's that time when we dim the lights here in the good Hot Horn Hall. Let's say that again. Hot Horn Hall. And then we point the radio spot over to the good grand piano. Because waiting and ready now, we find three fine people ready to steady old Jubilee with a piece of fancy porridge. We're talking about none other than the King Cole Trio. Simply because you're near me Funny, but when you're near me I'm in the mood for love Heaven is in your eyes Bright as the stars we under Oh, is there any wonder That I'm in the mood for love Why stop to think of weather this little dream might fade We'll put our hearts together Now we're one, I'm not afraid If there's a cloud above If it should rain, we'll let it But for tonight, forget it I'm in the mood now
Nat King Cole, whose hundredth birthday we celebrated on St. Patrick's Day this year, and the King Cole Trio from just after New Year's in 1948, and the program Jubilee, emceed by Hal Sawyer. Before the trio, we heard a big band feature from the guitarist who had already played some with Mr. Cole, Irving Ashby. His 99th birthday is today, and we're celebrating both men here on the big broadcast. 
I'm Marie Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. One of the themes of Gunsmoke and no doubt one of the most accurate points the show makes, is how tough life was on the frontier in the Old West. Well, one man learns that the hard way in tonight's episode. It's called Fall Semester, and it comes from May 30th, 1953, CBS and Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Mr. Dillon, I've been thinking. Yeah? We ought to renovate this place. What? Renovate it? Uh, oh, blast it, Chester. What's the matter? Oh, nothing, nothing. I, I was trying to write and listen to you at the same time, that's all. It can't be done. Well, Marshal. Yeah, what's the matter, Lee? I'm drunk. <laughs> well, he was walking. I thought he'd been shot. No, I'm not shot. I never saw you drunk before, Lee. Uh, well, would you like a little coffee or something? Yeah. Where's my gun? Now lock me up. What? Lock me up, I say. What? You mean you want to sleep in jail here? I do. You keep my gun. Are there any blankets out there, Chester? Well, there's one, Mr. Dillon. Oh, that's enough. Okay, Lee. Just follow Chester, then. I will. Marshal, I come here to prevent a killing. Oh? I'm drunk enough to want to kill him, and I'm sober enough to know I'm too drunk to kill him. You understand? Uh, to kill who, Lee? Jim Salter. That's who. My foreman. Is he in town, too? He is. At the Texas Trail. And let him stay there. Keep him out of here. I'm going to bed. Right in there, Mr. Dargan. I I never saw Mr. Dargan like that before, Mr. Dillon. No. I wonder what he was fighting with Salter about. Maybe Salter started it. Maybe he's drunk, too. Well, if he is, knowing him, he'll be after someone else to fight with now. 
I think I'll go take a look, Chester. All right, sir. Oh, Chester, if uh, Lee wakes up, just uh, give him another drink, huh? Yes, sir. I'm here alone, Kitty. Being alone isn't so bad, Matt, sometimes. Oh. Buy you a drink? No, thanks. I don't see Jim Salter anywhere. I wouldn't complain about that. Well, then he was here, huh? Sitting right where you are. And he'll be back any minute. How drunk is he, Kitty? Oh, he isn't very drunk. It might be an improvement. <laughs> It'd break his heart to hear you talk like that. If he has one. Here he comes now. Let's ask him. Yeah, you look sober enough. You move in fast, Marshal. Sit down, Salter. Sit down. Seeing as how it's my table, I will. I, uh, ran into Lee Dorgan. He was pretty mad about something. That so? Yeah. But it's all right, as long as you're not looking for trouble. Me, Marshal? I never look for trouble. Neither does Lee. Now, you know those Southerners, Marshal. They're always getting insulted about something. You've been foreman on Lee's ranch for over a year now, Solar. This is the first time he's wanted to kill you? <laughs> is that what he said? That's what I heard him say. Oh, uh, Yeah. Well, Marshal Lee's had a little bad luck with his cattle, that's all. When he's had a drink or two, he needs someone to blame it on. You know how it is with these greenhorns. No. How is it? If it weren't for me, he wouldn't have as many cows as he's got. Now he's lost a few strays, he's all upset. Well, as long as it doesn't end in gunplay. Oh, me and Lee get along fine when he's sober. Yeah. You have to leave, Matt. I'm afraid so, Kitty. Then I'm going to bed. Hey, wait a minute. You can't do that. Who says I can't, mister? Good night, Matt. <laughs> Good night, Kitty. Well, I'll be. Mighty nice of you, Chester, to bring me all that coffee. Oh, don't mention it, Mr. Dargan. I had a hangover once myself. Well, here's your gun, Lee. Oh. Thank you, Marshal. You, uh, still feel like killing Jim Salter? I'll kill any man that cheats me. That's how I was brought up, and that's how I am. So? I guess it's just instinct that tells me I'm being robbed by a Marshal. I got no proof at all. None whatsoever. What is it, Lee? Don't your cattle tally upright? Look. I came out here from Alabama 18 months ago. I bought a ranch. I'm trying to raise beef. I've learned a little, but I can see it takes years to be a cattleman. Meantime, I'm green and I'm an easy mark. But I'm not so dumb I can't count. Marshal, I branded over 300 calves last spring and fall, and more than half of them are missing right now. Stolen? I don't know, Marshal. 
I've asked every rancher and every buyer around here to be on the lookout for my brain that hadn't turned up once. Well, why do you think Salter has anything to do with it? Instinct, I told you. I just don't trust him. Nothing more, but it's enough. Well, then why don't you fire him? Uh, pride, I suppose. I want to beat him at his own game. Whatever it is. Well, good luck at it, Lee. Well, I need more than luck, Marshal. I, I, I need a little help. I just don't know enough about this business. Are you asking me to help you? I am. But how? Come out to the ranch. Take a look around. Maybe you'll see something I can't see. Well, I don't know. We're Brandon again tomorrow, Marshal. Come out then. You, you've got to help me. I've been... I'll be ruined if this goes on anymore. All right, Lee, I'll come. But, uh... Will you promise me one thing? What's that? If Salter does prove to be guilty, you won't try to kill him? No, I can't promise that. I respect the law, Marshal, but I got my own code, too. Thanks, just... Now, wait a minute, Lee. You're stubborn, but I don't think you deserve being ruined. All right, I'll come. Thank you, Marshal. Thank you. You know, the reason I got drunk last night was because I just felt so almighty helpless. Mad and helpless. Yeah. I know the feeling. See you tomorrow. Marshal Dillon. Good morning, Mr. Peters. And what can I do for you this morning? Well, uh, I'm interested in some brands that you got mm -hmm. registered here. Oh, you don't mean to tell me that you're going into the cattle business, Marshal? <laughs> no, not likely. I just want to see what new brands have been registered in the past, oh, 12 mm -hmm. or 13 months. Well, certainly, certainly, Marshal. Uh, let's see, 1865, 67, 68, 68, Yeah. Here it is. There, there you are. That's the official brand book for the last two years. Ah, thank you. You can start anywhere you like in it. Well, uh, maybe you remember, Mr. Peters. Mm hmm Has Jim Salter got a brand registered? Mm, Salter? Yeah, Jim Salter. The fellow who works for Lee Doggin? That's right. Yeah. Um, last summer. July, I believe. Look there. July? Mm-hmm. Yeah, July, 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 July. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here it is. Yeah? Uh, Salter, James Salter, July 14th. Bar S. That's it, Bar S, yes, indeed. How's he doing? Uh, fine, Mr. Peters, fine. Uh, thanks for the help. Oh, anytime, Marshal, anytime at all. <laughs> That's what I'm paid for. Yeah, goodbye. Goodbye, Marshal. <laughs> When we weren't working, most of the cattle buyers in town spent their time drinking toddy and telling lies at the Dodge House. And there I learned that a number of Bar S calves had been sold in the fall and some more of them in the spring. They remembered because it wasn't often a man sold only calves, and 
also because the brands were newly burned on. But they said the brands were clean and there was no question of any previous marking having been altered. I figured Salter was a whole lot smarter than the ordinary rustler. And the next day I found out just how smart. They sure got their branding fire set far enough apart, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, they have. Here's Jim Salter now with this first fire. Now we'll stop and say hello, Chester. What is? I'll tell you later. Now, you don't have to stop work just because we're here, Salter. That's all right, Marshal. Yeah, but you didn't brand that one. You just have to cut him out and rope him again. Iron's cold anyway. Oh, you got another iron there in the fire. We'll get him branded, Marshal. What are you doing out there anyway? Oh, we needed a change of scenery, so we thought we'd pay Lee a visit. Where is he? Working the fire down yonder. You sure do keep your fire separated. Anything else you fellas object to? Well, no, I wasn't objecting. I was just making an entirely impersonal observation, that's all. Well, go do your observing on Lee. You came to see him. Soldier, I'd starve plumb to death before I'd ever work around you. You sure would, Chester. All right, Jim. Wasting time. See you later, Marshal. Yeah. Okay, Adams, bring another one out. Okay. He's smart, that Salter. <laughs> to me, he's just mean and downright graceless. At least that too, Chester. Oh. You got something figured out, Mr. Dillon? I got it all figured out. What? Salter's stealing cattle, all right. I know just how he's doing it. But the problem now is how to handle Lee Dorgan and that code of his. I wouldn't want to see Lee hung for murder. No, sir. I surely wouldn't either. Hello. Hi, Marshal. Holy man. How are you, Marshal? Yes, sir. Fine, Lee. About through for the day. Why don't you ride on down to house? Okay. I'll be along directly. Uh, we stopped by Salter's fire back there. Oh, how are they doing? Fine. Uh, tell me something, Lee. Does Salter always work alone with those same two cowboys? Yeah, come to think of it, he does. Why? I was just curious. We'll see you at the house, Lee. Sure, Marshal. Tell the cook I'll string him up and supper in ready when we get there. <laughs> All right, I'll do that. Well, not a bad house Mr. Dargan's got here, Mr. Dillon. That's fine. Let's sit on the porch here, Chester. That'll be along soon. Yes, sir. Mr. Dillon? Yeah. I've give up trying to figure it out about Salter. You'll just have to explain it. Well, 
I told you he sold fresh branded calves under the Bar S mark that he's got registered. Yes, sir. Well, those were Lee's calves. Did you ever hear of using a cold brand, Chester? A cold brand? Yeah. You can either put it on through a wet blanket or you can just keep the iron hot enough to burn hair and press it down lightly so it won't scorch the hide. Yeah. Looks like a fine brand for a few months. That is, until the calf sheds. Well, I'll be doggone. And then the calf's as unmarked as the day it got dropped. You can brand it at leisure with any mark that appeals to you, like a bar S, for example. So that's what Salter's been doing. Yeah, he was about to put a cold iron on that calf a while ago when we rode up. Sure, sure. He works at a distance from Dorgan because the other cowboys had noticed right away what he's up to. Poorly, he's sure right about being green at this business. Well, he's going to learn now, Mr. Dillon. No. No, Chester, I can't tell him. Well, why not? Lee meant it when he said he'd kill Salter if he had any proof. And if he did that, he'd be worse off than he is now. Well, then why don't you just arrest that man? Yeah, judge would let him off, I'm afraid. Cold brand can be laid to carelessness. Of course, we could wait a couple of months and catch him doing his bar S branding. That's risky, too, though. Well, what are you going to do, Mr. Dillon? I don't know, Chester. But I'll have to figure something out by morning. Return to the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, there's a lifeline that stretches from here to Korea. A lifeline that you help sustain for our fighting men when you give blood to the Red Cross blood donor program. Call the Red Cross for an appointment to give blood the first thing Monday morning. And now, the second act of Gunsmoke. Understand it, Marshal. Just doesn't make any sense to me. But I asked for help, so all right, I'll do as you say. Then call Salter over here and tell him. Okay, Marshal. Salter. Salter. Yeah. Come over here. What do you want, Lee? We're already late this morning. I'm going to make a change in our branding setup, Salter. What? I've decided it'll be faster from now on. We all work from one fire instead of two. What for? You and Adams and Smith will work alongside the rest of us. That's all. Whose idea is this, anyway? Those are my orders. Oh? You still talk like a Confederate colonel, don't you? That'll do, Salter. Sure. This for you, Marshal. I never did like you anyway. It must have been pretty hard on Salter that day, having to put a permanent brand on Lee Dorgan's calves with a good hot iron. But he had no choice, and he did it. About noon, Chester and I said goodbye and rode back to Dodge. I figured that'd be the end of Lee's trouble. 
But two nights later, while Doc and I were taking our ease at the Alifraganza, I found out I was wrong. Uh, yeah? It's like that ignorant cowboy got a letter from his sweet girlfriend in St. Louis, Matt. <laughs> well, all right, Doc. What did the letter say? Oh, well, she mentioned that she'd found a nice room with running water. Yeah. <laughs> running water. <laughs> and so this uncivilized son of the prairie wrote her back to get rid of that Indian at once or our engagement is off. <laughs> he thought that uh, running water... Uh, you understand that now, don't you, Matt? Because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Was that the next drinks on you, Doc? <laughs> sure, Matt, sure. And when you get it, ask the bartender for a couple of good cigars. Uh, as soon as I finish, I won't say that. Well, the fin- <laughs> Uh-oh. I thought you left Lee Dog and uh, out at his room. What? Just came in the door. Must be looking for you. He's coming this way, man. Yeah. Uh-oh. What's that under his arm? Oh, looks like a blanket. Uh, hello, Lee. Sit down. Marshal. Doc. Oh, how are you, Lee? What are you doing in town? Are you all through, Brandon? Yeah, we're through. Oh, how'd it go? Yeah. Take a look at this blanket, Marshal. Huh? That's all marked up, isn't it? That sure is. And it's burned with my brand all over. Where'd you find this, Lee? One of my men was riding by the place where Salter and his had his branding fire, Marshal. His horse kicked it up. They'd half buried it there. They showed it to you, is that it? That's it. And he explained all about coal branding to me at the same time. I see. Where's Salter now, Lee? And he got wind I was on to him and left, Marshal. I think he can dodge with those two who worked with him, Adams and Smith. And, uh, you're looking for him? And I'm looking for him. But I'm telling you so you can look, too. That blanket's enough evidence, even for the law, I figure. Along with the witnesses that'll convict him. But, uh, I'll find him, Lee. Better hurry, Marshal. I might find him first. Lee! You'll stand trial if you kill him. I'm not worried about that. So long, Mark. Why didn't you take his gun, Matt? So as he couldn't get in any trouble. Hey, just find another one, Doc. He's a mighty determined man. Yes, I can see that. I'll uh, take that drink another time, Doc. I got work to do. Sure, ma'am. Oh, do me a favor. Will you drop this blanket off at the office for me? Oh, you bet your life I will. Good luck. Yeah, thanks. Mr. Dillon? Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what is it, Chester? There's something wrong, sir. I just saw Salter and two men walk up behind Lee Dargan over there and grab his gun. What? Well, where are they? They were headed toward Kelly's stable. I thought I'd better find you first. Come on. What are they doing in Dodge, anyway? Uh, Lee's on to him, Chester. He knows the whole story now. And they know he knows it. Well, then somebody's going to get killed, sure. Yeah, it looks that way. All right. Stay behind me, Chester. That's the only door to the stable. They'll have to come out there, sir. Yeah, I know. But we're going in after him. Easy now. The entrance to Kelly's stable was open, but there was no light showing. Chester and I stepped quickly around the frame of the door, and we stopped just inside, waiting for our eyes to get used to the darkness. We could hear voices in the back where the men were saddling up. 
And then suddenly we both saw it at the same time. The first doll, Mr. Dillon. Look. Yeah. It's Mr. Dargan. They hung him. Yeah, they just did it. He can't be dead yet. Here, take my knife and cut him down. You can climb up on the feed box. I'll cover you from here now. Hurry. Yes, sir, I'll hurry. Dark got loose somehow. Get up front there and take a look, both of you. I'll finish saddling up. Okay, Sully. Come on, Smith. Stay in here, Chester. Don't move. Mr. Dargan's breathing. When they come up, we'll jump them. I'll take Adams. I'm quiet now. I'll see him. Rope must have broke. Let's hit him on the head and have done with him. Yeah, might as well. You do it, Smith. I'll wait here. Yeah, okay. I'll see if you're... You all right, Chester? Yes, sir. Good. Now keep low. What's going on up there? Who's in there? Throw down your gun, Salter. Who's that? It's Matt Dillon. Now do as I say. Sure, Marshal. Here it is. guns off of Adams and Smith. We don't have to worry about Salter. All right, sir. Lee? Lee, how are you? Oh, it's good to breathe again, Marshal. I was about gone. Well, you're all right. Well, we got him. Salter's dead. You won't have any trouble now. No, no. But it's not easy the way you people educate a man out here. Well, if it was easy, Lee, anyone could manage. Well, thanks, Marshal. Yeah, sure. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. 
Featured in the cast were John McIntyre as Lee, Harry Bartell as Salter, and John Daner as Peters. Parley Bear as Chester, Georgia Ellis as Kitty, and Howard McNair as Doc. Gunsmoke has been selected by the Armed Forces Radio Service to be heard by our troops overseas. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, the episode called Fall Semester from the spring of 1953 and from the big broadcast here on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey co-produces the show and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org or on Twitter at WAMU 88.5. And do visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. One of the unhappy ways Dragnet still resonates with us some 70 years later is the number of episodes dealing with domestic violence. It's an issue that law enforcement has to face all too often in our own time, and it's the subject of tonight's episode. It's called The Big Rain, and it comes from November 3rd, 1953, NBC and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. You get a call that a woman has been badly beaten. The circumstances indicate foul play. Your job? Check it out. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, November 17th. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Lorman. My name's Friday. We were on our way back from the main jail, and it was 11.27 p.m. when we got to room 42. Homicide. We've got to get that car radio fixed, Joe. It's getting worse all the time. Yeah, well, we can take it over in the morning. thing almost knocked me right out of the seat when I called in the night. As soon as you press the button, bang, you get a shot. Yeah, when I was out with Lopey yesterday, he picked up the mic. I thought he was going to climb right out of the window. Yeah, well, that's pretty funny as long as you don't have to use the thing. There must be a short someplace, huh? Got to get it fixed. You know, I must have used a dollar's worth of dimes calling in today. This keeps up, I'm going to have to give up lunches. Well, that wouldn't hurt you either. That's not kind, Joe. I've lost seven pounds in the last two weeks. Where? I'm going to see about a transfer. Well, let's finish up this report so we can get out of here. What do you say? Okay, I'm with you. Hot shot, I get it. That's a robbery call, bar out in the Olympic. Oh, thought for a minute we were going to have to go out. All I want to do is get home and get some dry socks on. My feet are killing me. Yeah, well, I got an idea. If you'll stop talking and pick up a pencil, we can quit on time for a change. Another hot shot. I'll get it. 
Catch a hat, beating out in Hollywood. Yeah? Woman found her laying in the gutter. She's still alive? Was when they got the call. We better step on it, though. Uh -huh. They don't know how long she's going to last. When we got to the address we'd been given by the complaint board, two radio cars from Hollywood Division were already there. An ambulance had arrived, and the crew was doing what they could for the victim. She was still alive, but the attendant said that she appeared to have a skull fracture in addition to possible internal injuries. From one of the officers who answered the call, we found that the victim had been sprawled across the sidewalk, her head in the gutter. Due to the heavy rain, a stream of water was running down and into a storm drain. The fact that the drain was above the victim's head appeared to be the only thing that saved her from drowning. The crime lab had been called, and the men from Hollywood Division were doing what they could to keep the crowd back in order to preserve any physical evidence that might have been left. The victim appeared to be a woman in her early 40s. The clothes she wore looked expensive, but they were badly torn. Her face was cut, and the men in the ambulance crew removed her immediately to Hollywood Emergency Hospital for treatment. An officer was assigned to her in the event she regained consciousness. When she was found, her left shoe was missing, and there was no sign of any purse or wallet. None of the people who'd gathered in the crowd could give us an identification of her. The homes in the vicinity were large, and the area was sparsely populated. The nearest house to the place where the victim was found was at least 300 feet down the street. We talked to the people in the crowd and found that the man who'd made the original call was still supposed to be there. We checked with the officers in the radio unit, but they said they hadn't seen him. From them, however, we found that the call had been from the home of a Mr. and Mrs. Roger Heflin. We contacted them, and they came back to the scene and pointed out the man. Frank and I took him over to our car for questioning. All right, Johnson, you want to tell us what happened? I don't know. You called the police, didn't you? Yeah, I called them. You found her? Yes, sir. She was lying in the street like that. I got scared, and I called the police. I thought maybe she was dead. What were you doing up here this time of night? Just walking around. You live up here, do you? No. Where do you live? Got a room down a fountain. Let me see your identification, will you please? Oh, yeah. Here's my wallet. Any money in it? No. All right, let me have it. Yeah, here you are. This your true name? Cecil August Johnson? Yeah. Who's Mary Johnson? Hmm? I say, who's Mary Johnson? Who's she? My sister. This her address here on the card? Yeah. Hey, you aren't going to call her, are you? You aren't going to call her. Why? Well, she'd be pretty sore about it if you did. She don't like it for me to get mixed up with cops. She don't like it at all. You ever been in an institution? Hmm? State institution. You ever been in one? Yeah. I was in Camarillo once. How long ago did you get out? Oh, long time ago. Three days. Long time ago. I haven't been there for a long time. What were you there for? Molesting people. Who? I was in Camarillo. Why'd they send you there, fella? To get well. From what? Just well. Yeah, we know. And what'd they want you to get well from? I was never in Camarillo. You haven't been drinking tonight, have you? Hmm? I said you've been drinking. Yeah, a little bit. Where? Bar down Hollywood Boulevard. When they sent you to the hospital, what was the reason? I've never been to the hospital. You told us that you'd been in Camarillo. Well, that was to get well. Now, look, fellow, we asked you before. What for? They thought I was molesting people. Were you? No, I didn't hurt anybody. Did they say you did? Yeah. Who? A lady. They said I hit her. Did you hit her? Huh? I said, did you hit the woman? No, I never hurt anybody. You know who the woman is that you found? You aren't going to call my sister, are you? Do you know who the woman is? What woman? Now, look, fellow, pay attention. The one you found tonight. Yeah, I've known her for a long time. What's her name? Grace. You know her last name? Hmm? Do you know her last name? No. You know, i never really been in camera. I just told you that. That's so? Why? I don't know. Just sometimes I like to do things like that. I, I don't have no reason. I just like to do it. Like, once I told my sister I killed a man, she almost fainted. I just like to do that once in a while. Things get dull. I like to get them started. Where'd you meet Grace? Bar down in Hollywood. I go in there all the time. I met her there. Did you meet her there tonight? Yeah. Yeah, she was there. Said she had a fight with her old man. Said they had a real beef. She told me he hit her. 
felt it right in the mouth. What do you think of a guy do a thing like that to a woman? Any man do a thing like that, he's no good. No good at all. They said I did it, too. I told my sister I hit a woman. Who said that? Other cops when they arrested me. When was this? When I was at Camarilla to get well. You under a doctor's care now? No, no. I got real well at Camarilla, real well. They let me go. You just got through telling us that you'd never been there. I'm a liar. You can't believe anything I say. I'm a real liar. My sister's all the time saying that about me. She says I'm a liar. That's one of the reasons she used to get sore at me. I'm such a liar. I was never there. You know where this Grace lived? No. I think it was up on Ledgewood Drive. I think that's where it was, on Ledgewood Drive. You know where the house is? Mm-mm. I never saw it. I was going to go up there one day and punch your old man in the nose. You know, because he hit Grace. I was plenty sore about it. He gave her a black eye. I was plenty sore. But I didn't. You know why? You tell us. Because I thought my sister would get mad at me. She always gets mad when I get in fights. And when I lie. She get real sore. She got no sense of humor. Yeah. There's a guy at the hospital that had a real sense of humor. He's funny. He had a piece of inner tube and he wore it like a hat. Floppy, you know? He had a real great sense of humor. But my sister, she don't like anybody to laugh. How many times have you been arrested, fella? Maybe a couple. Here in Los Angeles? Yeah. All the time in L.A. Cops here don't like me. They got no sense of humor. None. I never saw such dull cops. All right, Johnson, you wait here. We've got a few things to check out, and we want to take you downtown. You aren't going to arrest me, are you? We'll see. Well, I hope not. My sister, she'd be real sore. Johnson? Hmm? Tell me something. Did you hit her? You mean, did I hit Grace? Is that what you mean? That's what I mean. No. I met her tonight, and she asked me to take a walk with her. To take a walk, that's all. Then all of a sudden, she was lying on the ground. I was pretty drunk. I didn't know what happened. Just all of a sudden, she was there, and I got scared, and I called the cops. But I didn't hit her. I wouldn't do a thing like that to Grace, not me. You believe that, don't you? Well, don't you? You gotta buy it. You got it, because it's the truth. Is that right? Sure. It's the truth. Every word. Well, you said it yourself, didn't you? Hmm? You're an awful liar. 12.52 a.m. While one of the officers from a radio unit stood by with Cecil Johnson, we talked with Lieutenant Lee Jones from the crime lab. He told us that what footprints they'd found in the immediate vicinity of the victim had been destroyed by the rain. He told us that his crew was unable to find any useful physical evidence. The area was searched, but we failed to find either the missing left shoe or the woman's purse if she'd carried one. We put in a call to the Hollywood Receiving Hospital. Dr. Elwin Terrell told us that the victim was suffering from a fracture of the skull and apparently several broken ribs. He told us that the woman was in a deep coma and she couldn't be questioned at that time. We asked him to contact us through the business office in the event that she regained consciousness. We questioned the people in the neighborhood, but they were of no aid. None of them recalled hearing any automobiles on the streets, and none of them could testify as to the people loitering in the area. 1.10 a.m. We took Cecil Johnson and had him detained at the city jail pending further investigation. A check of his record showed that he'd been sent to Camarillo twice on charges of molesting and violation of Section 245 PC. He'd been released into the custody of his sister three weeks previously. Before he was placed in a cell, we got the name and address of the bar where he said he'd met the woman he called Grace. 1.40 a.m. Frank and I drove out to the place. It was located on Hollywood Boulevard near Las Palmas Avenue. There was only one other customer in the place when we went in. The bartender was cleaning up for the night. What'll it be? We're looking for Emil. I'm him. What do you want? It's not about that lousy Jackie, is it? What's that? You're cops, aren't you? Isn't this about Jackie? We're police officers, yeah. You gotta understand, I thought he was an actor. You know, I thought he was just hanging around the place to take work calls. That's what he told me. I didn't have no way of knowing different. It's the truth. We don't know anything about Jackie. We'd like to ask you some questions about a man named Cecil Johnson. That crackpot? You know, I thought you were after me because of Jackie. 
Oh, there it goes again. Excuse me. Yeah. Hello? Here it is. No, he ain't here anymore. What? I don't care how the horse did. Jackie ain't here. Now, don't call me no more. You see, this guy Jackie's a book. All the time he's using my phone and I don't know it. Yesterday, a couple of cops come in and put the arm on him. All day, the phone's been ringing. Yeah. From what they say, he's lucky he got arrested. He must have lost his shirt yesterday. Horse came in that paid 20 to 1. Boy, he really must have had it. I see. Now, what do you know about this Cecil Johnson? That creep. A real creep. Did you see him tonight? Yeah, he was in. About what time? Let's see. It was uh, just before the fight on TV. That'll make it about 6.45. Yeah, about then. About 6.45. He come in alone? Oh, yeah. Always does. He don't have no friends. What time did he leave? Do you remember? Oh, he stayed around and watched the fight. Got into an argument with a the guy. Then he left about, uh... Well, let's see. I guess it must have been about 9.30, quarter of 10. You know a woman named Grace? We understand she's in here quite a bit. Grace, huh? Well, we've got a couple of Graces come in here. What's yours look like? About 42, dark hair, wearing a tweed coat. Uh, excuse me a minute, huh? Yeah. Hello? Yeah, it is. No, he's not here. He won't be back, so stop calling. I don't care if it did pay that. Look, but I got no part in the action. Now, forget the number, huh? Jackie's gone. He's in the can. Yeah, he's pinched. Now, lay off, huh? Now, let's see. Dark hair, tweed coat. Oh, yeah, that'll be Grace Dillon. Dillon? Yeah, she's pretty much of a regular. D-I-L-L-O-N. Yeah, I guess so. D-I-L-L-O-N. I guess that's the way to spell it. Well, what's all the questions? Something wrong? What time was she in here tonight? Who says she was? Well, that's what we understand. Oh. Oh, yeah, well, there's nothing wrong around here. No reason not to cooperate. She was here, come in about 8. What time did she leave? Oh, I guess it was 9.30, 9.45. she leave alone? I gotta think about that. All right. Lots of people in here with the fights, you know. Let me think. Uh, I'm gonna tear that thing right out of the wall. He ain't here. He's been pinched. I don't know when he'll be back, and I don't care. You know, come to think about it, I think she left with that Cecil. Johnson? Yeah. Did either one of them have much to drink, do you know? Well, Cecil had a couple of beers. That's all he needs. Don't take much with him. How about the Dillon woman? She was feeling no pain when she got here. Really carrying a load. I finally told her to take a walk, told her I couldn't serve her no more. That's when she left. Her and Cecil were sitting right there next to each other. When I told her I wouldn't pour no more for her, she got hacked and her and Cecil left. You know where she lives? Not right off. I, I can look it up. We keep a list of people who come in here. Send them announcements about things, like when we get a new piano play, things like that. I see. I can look it up for you. Just take a minute. Fine, thanks. C-A-B-C. Oh, here it is. Darby, Dexter, Dibbs. I wish he'd come in and pick up the tab can. Oh, let's see here. Here it is. Here it is. 2917 Ledgewood Drive. 2917. Thank you. You can take the card if you want. Don't make any difference to me if she never comes back. The way she carried on tonight. People just don't understand. What's that? You can just serve them so much. After that, you're pouring a hundred-proof trouble. You gotta shut them off sometime. Uh-huh. She ever come in here with her husband? Dylan? Yeah. A couple of times. Quite a while ago, though. They came in late one night. Sat back there in the booth. Had a couple of quick belts. He drinks Irish whiskey. Likes it neat. Had a big beef. I finally had to go back and ask him to go out. He's a real bum. He's mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The kind of guy where to know him is to hate him. You know the kind? Yeah. He ain't here. I don't care how much you lost. He's in the can. What? What? Oh, yeah, honey. Well, I didn't know it was you. Uh-huh. Hey, yeah, I'll be home early as soon as I close up. Right. Yeah, well, I do, too. What? All right, honey. I love you. I do, too, mean it. Look, honey, there's a, there's a couple of men here I got to talk to. Huh? 
Well, yeah, as soon as I close up, yeah. Uh, uh, goodbye, honey. What? Oh, yeah, yeah, all right. There, bye. It's the, it's the wife. We've just been married a couple of weeks. She's kind of, uh, you know. Yeah. Did Dylan never hit his wife, would you know? Yeah, he did. She came in here one night with a mouse that had no end. Said her old man gave it to her. Say, what's all this about anyway? There's something wrong with Grace? Something happened to her? Well, we don't know yet. Well, let me give you this for free. If there's anything happened to her, six to an even was her old man. He's a real bum. He's mean. Anything wrong, and it's him that caused it. You better talk to him. You'll find out. All right, sir. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. We will. Thanks. No, not at all. Glad to help out. All right. Good night. Uh, say, you guys going downtown? Yeah, that's right. To the jail? Yeah. Well, if you see Jackie, will you give him a message for me? All right, what's that? Tell him if he gets out, I don't want him back here no more. Okay. Guy ties up my phone. Two twenty-six a.m. We got a description of the victim's husband and checked the name through R and I. We were unable to come up with any criminal record on him. Frank and I drove out to the address given us by the bartender. It was a large English stucco house, five blocks from where Grace Dillon had been found. We rang the bell and waited. An elderly woman answered the door and told us that Herman Dillon was not in. She explained that she was a babysitter and that she'd been called to take care of the couple's three children. She went on to say that Mr. Dillon left the house at approximately 10.15 p.m. and had not yet returned. We called the office and arranged for a stakeout to be set up on the house. While we waited for the officers to arrive, the babysitter told us that the Dillons had constant fights. She said that on several occasions, Mr. Dillon threatened to kill his wife if she didn't spend more time at home taking care of the children. She went on to explain that there'd been an argument that evening and that after a loud fight, the wife had left the house. After she'd been gone for over an hour, Herman Dillon left to find her. 3.02 a.m. The officers arrived. We asked them to wait for the husband to return and then to notify us immediately. Frank and I drove downtown and checked into the crime lab. We talked with Lieutenant Lee Jones regarding his findings. He told us that he'd gone over the victim's clothing, but he was unable to find any physical evidence to help us in finding her assailant. 3.46 a.m. We checked into the office and put in a call to the hospital. How do you spell that, Doc? Huh? Uh, A-D-E. Yes, sir. Well, do you have any idea when that might be? I see, sir. Mm-hmm. Well, that you let us know. Right. Yeah, the business office here will know how to reach us. Right. Thanks again. Good night, Doc. How is she? Well, the doctor says he's finished his examination. She's got a frontal bone fracture, three broken ribs, cuts, and contusions. She gonna be all right? Yeah, you think so. So she might come out of it any time. Says it looks like she might have been thrown from a car. Well, that'd explain the missing shoe and purse, wouldn't it? Yeah. You have any idea when we can talk to her? No, might not do any good anyway. What do you mean? Well, the doc says this kind of fracture can produce a retrograde amnesia. Huh? She won't remember anything. You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. Frank and I signed out of the office and we went home. At 5.13 a.m., I got a call that the husband of the victim, Herman Dillon, had returned home. The officers who called said that they were bringing him down to the city hall. I got in touch with Frank, and by the time we got to the squad room, Dillon was already there. He appeared dazed and acted as if he'd been drinking heavily. We sent out for some black coffee for him. He apparently didn't know what had happened to his wife. What's all this about, anyway? What are you dragging me out of my house like this for? Got a few questions we want to ask you, Dylan. What do you got that's so important you got to go through it at 6 in the morning? When would you see your wife last? About 7.30 last night. Why? How do you and your wife get along? We've been married for 10 years. Not much of an answer, mister. You're not married. 
Been married ten years, and it's an answer. Been married ten years, it's all the answer you need. Well, maybe you better spell it out for me. After that long, you have a few disagreements. Bound to. You know, being together all that time. You and your wife have a disagreement last night, did you? Yeah, we had a discussion. What about? I don't think that's any of your business. Yeah, well, maybe it is. Now, what'd you argue about? Her running around. Wasn't a real argument, just a discussion. Well, we got it. It was more than that. Then you got it wrong. We heard you hit her a couple of times. That's a lie. I might have shoved her a little. She had it coming, though, all the time running around. We got three kids, three little kids, and she doesn't care that for them. Always going out, hanging around those cheap bars, boozing it up. I came home the other night, she'd walked out and left the kids all alone, all by themselves. Didn't even get a sitter for them. Where you been tonight? Why? Why you have to know that? You want to tell us? Yeah. After Grace and me had the fight, she walked out. I waited for her to come home, then when she didn't, I went out to find her. Did you? Hmm? Did you find her? No, I looked all over for her. All the bars along the boulevard, but she wasn't there. Where you been since the bars closed? Walking around. And all this rain? Yeah. I've been trying to figure out what to do, trying to make up my mind. About what? What I should do with Grace. Things can't go on like this. They just can't. You've heard from some of your wife's friends that you made threats in their life. Is that right? Who told you that? We just heard it. Is it true? Yeah, I suppose so. If I'd have found her tonight, I'd have maybe killed her. I'd never been so mad before. You see anybody you knew tonight? What? When you were walking around, did you see anybody you knew? No, why? When you got no way to prove where you were. Why'd I have to do that? Might make things easier on you. Hey, what's this all about, anyway? Why are you asking all these questions about me and Grace? What are you trying to say? Where is Grace, you know? Yeah. Well, where is she? What's happened to her? She's in the hospital. She's had an accident. It's pretty bad. What kind of an accident? Looks like she was beaten. And you think I did it? Might have been you. She alive? Yeah. You think I beat her up? Did you? No. I maybe wanted to knock some sense into her, but I didn't do it. You prove where you were tonight? Why? Can you prove where you were? No, I don't even know myself. Hey, you, you really think I did it? That's what we're trying to find out. You know, I was pretty drunk tonight. I got real loaded. That's a terrible part. Yeah, let me see your hands, will you? Why? Let me see them. All right. Put them up there, both of them. Here. Where'd you get those bruises? I don't know. I don't remember. You better try. This is pretty important. I told you I was drunk. There's only one thing that'll put bruises like that on your hands. Yeah? You hit something pretty hard. Herman Dillon was detained pending further investigation. We'd called the hospital, but there was no change in Mrs. Dillon's condition. Because of the lack of physical evidence, her testimony was essential in apprehending the person who'd beaten her. We had two prime suspects. Cecil Johnson, who was known to have been in her company when she left the bar. Johnson's record indicated that he was capable of committing the crime. On the other hand, the victim's husband had stated that he might kill her. He was unable to explain his movements at the time of the attack. The only person who could tell us the true story was the victim herself, and we had the doctor's statement that she might not remember the events immediately leading up to the beating. At 10.14 a.m. the following morning, the officer called from the hospital telling us that Mrs. Dillon had regained consciousness and could be questioned. The doctor told us that she was calling for her husband and asked that we bring Dillon with us. We went by the city jail and picked him up, and then we drove over to the hospital. The doctor told us that Mrs. Dillon was in a weak condition and that we couldn't talk to her at any length. Frank, Dillon, and I went into her room and waited for her to open her eyes. Is that you, Herman? Yes, dear. You're not mad at me, are you? You're not still mad at me? No, dear, I'm not. Oscar. I was afraid you still were mad. You know, Herman, you shouldn't have hit me like you did. I know maybe I had a reason, but you shouldn't have hit me. Can you tell us what happened, Mrs. Dillon? Who are you? Police officers. What are you doing here? Trying to find out who did this to you. It wasn't anybody did it. Ma'am? wasn't anybody. I did it myself. Silly did it all by myself. 
I don't believe I understand, Miss Dillon. Him and me had a fight, and I walked out. I was going to leave him. I went down and had a few drinks, just a few, and I got to thinking about me and Herman. How I was such a bad wife. I got to thinking about the kids and how I was a bad mother. You aren't still mad at me, are you, Herman? Really, in your heart? No, Grace, I'm glad you're going to be all right. That's all that counts. You want to tell us what happened, Miss Dillon, please? Oh, I was on my way home. I was going back. Cecil was walking home with me. It was raining pretty hard, and we came to a gutter that was full of water. I stepped up on the curb to go around it. I didn't want to step in the water, and I fell. Fell down the hill, rolled all the way to the bottom, all the way to the next street. I remember falling. I remember laying in the street down below and how I couldn't move. I didn't know about anything else after that. Until just when you got here, Len, I don't remember much of anything. You mean that you fell down yourself, that nobody beat you up, huh? No. Herman hit me when I was home. He got mad at me and hit me. But he was right. You were right, honey. Real right. But it's going to be different, I promise you. Just as long as you ain't still mad at me, that's all that matters, that you ain't mad. Now, take it easy, honey. Everything's going to be all right. Just take it easy and try to get some sleep. I love you, Herman. I love you very much. And I'm going to make it all up to you, all the bad times. I'm going to make it all up to you. I love you too, Grace. Now, you go to sleep. Get some rest. All right, honey. All right, thank you, Miss Dillon. We better go. You gonna want me anymore, Sergeant? No, I don't think so. Wonder if she means it. If she really does. What's that? About making it up to the kids, how things are gonna be different. Well, I don't know. She said she would. And that's just it. Hmm? She said it so many times before. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On November 18th, a meeting was held in the captain's office, Homicide Division. In a moment, the results of that meeting. Since no crime had been committed, no legal action was taken against Mr. and Mrs. Dillon. Cecil August Johnson was removed to room 5, Georgia Street Receiving Hospital, for further psychiatric examination. just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Jack Crucian, Vivi Janis, Harry Bartell. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Dragnet, the story called The Big Rain, from the fall of 1953, and from the big broadcast here on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. 48 hours from now, it'll be New Year's Eve. And if you're one of the seemingly infinite number of people whose idea of a good time is being in Times Square when the ball drops, well then, more power to you. Me, I observed that cattle drive from a rooftop party about 30 years ago, and that was enough to warn me off the event forever. 
For the lighthearted radio detectives Jerry and Pam North, the Times Square crush turned downright deadly one time, and we're going to hear that adventure now. Interestingly, it comes from an Armed Forces Radio rebroadcast of a Mr. and Mrs. North episode. It was folded into an AFRS anthology series hosted by Peter Laurie called Mystery Playhouse. You'll hear Mr. Laurie doing a parody of, well, of Peter Laurie. And you'll hear references to the World War II General Grant tanks and to the actors Betty Davis and Sarah Bernhardt. The episode's sometimes called Frisbee Clisby, and it was originally broadcast over NBC on January 17, 1945. This rebroadcast comes from the AFRS series Mystery Playhouse. I meant the total strangers. Would your feet feel any better if acquaintances were set to Well, at least there wouldn't be so many. Uh, there are more people I don't know than I did know. Oh. Well, anyway, it's... Oh, here comes Frisbee. Oh, thank heavens. Now maybe we can get get away from here. Hello, Pam. Hello, Jerry. Well, uh, you're late, so... Frisbee. Uh, time fooey. I should allow myself to be browbeaten by a watch, a mere mechanical gadget. Okay, free soul. <laughs> Anyway, come on now. Let's get out of this crowd. Why? What's wrong with the crowd? It's too crowded. Another illusion shattered. What's that? I thought you Norse loved your fellow man. We do. But we don't like him walking all over our Sorry, but the crowd is part of my plan. What plan? Jerry, my boy, I'm going to prove to you that when I write a murder, it's murder. Hmm? 
You said Snorty couldn't get away with it. I don't think he could. Who's Snorty? A character in my book commits a murder, a beautiful murder in a crowd. In a crowd? Mm -hmm. But wouldn't somebody notice? That's just the point. Not, not if there was a distraction. Not if there was a distraction. Sorry, Frisbee, I still don't believe it. I'll take the story, but you've got to change that scene. I'll starve first. Huh? Okay, so I wouldn't starve. He's got me there, Pam. I like to eat too much. Ah, me. Selling my soul for a bowl of soup. Uh, it's filet uh, mignon, brother, and you know it. Well, anyway, the principle's the same, or the lack of principle. But I won't have you murdering my murders. After all, there's a limit to what an artist will tolerate. I'm sorry, Frisbee. I just can't believe that. Now, man. look, 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 look. You believe this is a crowd, don't you? Definitely. Well, if I were to kill somebody right here, right now, what? in front of all these people, Are you and kidding? nobody noticed... But, Frisbee... Then, would you take that scene, Jerry? Oh, stop it, fellow. What's the use of... Would you? Would you? Well, naturally, but... Okay, that's all I wanted to know. Frisbee! You don't really mean that hey, you really... Why don't you look where you're going? Well, as a matter of fact, I wasn't going anywhere. I was just standing here. Oh, a wise guy, huh? Hardly. Now, look, stranger, why don't you run along and leave me alone? Oh, you want to get rid of me, huh? I suppose I ain't good enough to talk to you. Okay, okay. Hang around if it'll make you happy. Now, what were you saying, Christine? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I ain't through with you yet. Oh, sorry. Oh, I said I'm sorry. What kind of a way to talk is that? What do you mean? Don't you know you've been insulted? I hadn't noticed. Gee, Mr. Clisby, I don't know what to do with him. He don't want to fight. Well, sock him. Huh? Go on, sock him. Why, Frisbee? Well, what are you waiting for, Punchy? I can't sock a guy unless he makes me mad. Thank you, Punchy. You so great delicacy of feeling. Why, you? Oh, what's the matter now? Delicate, am I? Take that. Oh. I'll show you who's delicate, you dirty rat. Oh. Hey, you knocked me down. So I did. Hey. Maybe I am delicate. Or maybe I'm not. Well, did you see me do it? Did you see me do it? Do what? For the murder. What are you talking about? Come here. What is it? Look, in that doorway. See that fellow lying on the steps? Oh, Frisbee. Looks just like a drunk, doesn't it? Huh? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That ain't no drunk. Ah, uh, you keep out of this. Mr. I seen what I seen. With my own two eyes, I did. I was standing right here on this spot. Uh, what's your name, sir? Me? Yeah. Gerald North. I'm pleased to meet you, Mr. North. My name's Willis. Cuthbert Willis. And I'm prepared to testify I am. I ain't afraid. He can't intimidate me. He can't. What are you talking about? Your friend here. I seen him. Here's your friend, ain't he? Yes. Well, so just goes to show you ought to be more careful what kind of friends you choose. I seen what he did. I give up. I positively give up. Well, I should hope so. I still say it would have worked, Jerry, if only Punchy had put up any kind of a fight. Are you referring to me, Mr. Gliss? Yes, Punchy, I am. Why did you let him knock you down so fast? If you'd only created a real disturbance, nobody would have noticed me. Oh, gee, I'm sorry, Mr. Clisby. I'm afraid it's like this fella says. I have great delicacy of feelings. And I guess tonight I was feeling extra delicate. Oh, it spoiled my fuel. You stabbed him, you did. I saw it with a knife. Frisbee, you didn't. Not really. Oh, no, of course. Come on, bud, get up. How can you get up? You killed him. Nonsense. Do I look like a lunatic? Okay, so looks are only skin deep. Now, look, Jerry, I, I wouldn't really kill a guy just to prove a point. Oh, thank heavens for that. But I did go through the motions. And no one would have noticed either if Punchy hadn't been feeling so blame delicate. Come on, bud, get up. Get, bud. Wait a minute, Frisbee. This fellow's not going to get up. What do you mean? I mean, this fellow's really been stabbed. He's dead. <laughs> I'd like to speak to Lieutenant Wigan, please. Okay. Hello, Bill. Pam and I have... What's that? Yes, there's been a murder. Okay, Bill, relax. After all, you don't think we enjoy finding bodies, do you? Right in the doorway of the Kramer building. 
I'm calling from the drugstore next door. Okay, we'll wait. So long. And Bill's coming right over. Oh, good. Now, where's Frisbee? I want to ask Miss him. No, Miss no, he's getting away here. What? The murderer. He's getting in a cab. He's going to escape. That's right. Look, Jerry, there's Frisbee getting in a cab in front of the store. Yeah, come on. Frisbee, wait a minute. Frisbee! He won't wait. I knew it. I knew it. Oh, that wacky idiot. He's only going to make things worse. Come on, Pam. We've got to catch him. But the taxi's turned the corner already, Jerry. We'll never be able to catch never him. Never mind that. I think I know where he's gone. Are you a mind reader? No, darling. A script reader. And it's taught me what goes on in what Frisbee uses for a mind. <laughs> Here's the elevator. Get in. All right, Jerry. Uh, push the button for the fifth floor, will you, please? Yes. And uh, now, will you please tell me why we came here? Because, according to the papers on the dead man, this is where he lived. But what makes you think that Frisbee will be here? <laughs> because, darling, I've published Frisbee's books for years. Oh. <laughs> and you accuse me of talking in circles. It's really simple, sweetheart. In every one of Frisbee's stories, the first place the hero goes in checking up on a murder is to the victim's apartment looking for clues. And you think Frisbee is living the path now? Well, it's worth a chance. Uh, let's see, 5C. There it is, darling, right across the hall. Okay, come on. And uh, do his heroes have any special ways of getting into apartments that belong to them? Mm-hmm. They usually pick the locks. Oh, let's see if it works. Well? Yep, it's open. Come on. I don't see it. Maybe it's the other room. Frisbee! Golly, Jerry. What is it? Suppose the person who picked that lock wasn't Frisbee. Then, sweetheart, we are definitely sticking our necks out. That wouldn't be the first time. Somebody's been here. Look at the papers all over that desk. Yeah. Let's see what they... Wait a minute. What is it, darling? Look, alongside the desk. Oh, golly, Feet. Yeah. Well, there are feet, there's usually a body. Let's see. Yes, there is. Uh-oh. It's Frisbee. Oh, Jerry. Jerry. Is he... Is he... Wait a minute. Oh, it's all right, Pam. He's breathing. Oh, thank heaven. Oh, Oh, oh. Frisbee, are you all right? Oh, oh Pam, Jerry. Well, what oh. are you doing here? How'd you find me? How'd you know where I was? Jerry read it in the book. Huh? Oh, my head. Ooh, how did they do it? Do what? Get it through the door. Your head? No, the General Grant. What the devil are you talking about? The tank. I was hit by a tank at General Grant's. <laughs> Frisbee, aren't you exaggerating? Oh, well, perhaps slightly. Do you think you'll be all right, Frisbee? Well, I'll never be the same. Oh, well, maybe it'll be an improvement. Did you catch her? Huh? Who? Shirley Anderson. No, I see you didn't. Who's Shirley Anderson? The dead man's fiance. Pardon, ex-fiance. Well, why should we have caught her? Was she here? Well, she must have been. Did you see her? No, but she'd be the only one who wanted the letter. What letter? When I came here, I found a letter from Shirley to Bud breaking off their engagement. Seems they had a fight. Well, where is the letter? Well, I had it in my hand, and everything went black. Oh. 
Oh, so Shirley Anderson was General Grant. Well, she must have been. Oh, my head. Ooh, I know that girl has a... <laughs> she's a lot stronger than she looks, or I'm getting soft-headed. At the... Uh, Jerry, who are you calling? I want to see if I can get hold of Bill Wagon. Okay, but don't tell him I'm here. Oh, Bill won't hurt you, Frisbee. Oh, the police are fools. They'll lock me up and try to sweat a confession out of me. I've got to solve this crime before they catch me. Oh, cut the dramatic. I know what I'm talking about. Sure, it happens in every book you write. But Bill isn't like that. You're just making matters worse by running away. But, Jerry, I didn't kill Bud, and I... I'm sure you didn't, but... Oh, wait a minute. Hello, Green Drugstore? Well, I want you to do me a favor. Will you please go next door to the Kramer building and give a message to Lieutenant Wigand of the New York Homicide Squad? Yes, I think you'll find him there. Just tell him that Jerry called and say that he and Pam are at Bud Barnes' apartment. It's 5C in the Sylvester James apartment. That's right. Thank you very much. Jerry, let's face it. Let's face what, Frisbee? Look, I am a genius. Well... And a genius has no business sitting on the floor holding his head. There's a crime to be solved, and I'm the man to solve it. Well, when Bill gets here... I can't wait for Bill. Time is of the essence. First, we must array our facts. Okay, array away. Well, number one... Whoever killed Bud must be someone who knew of your plan to put on an act for Jerry with Bud. Ah, check. But that gets us nowhere too fast, on account of there are too many. Bud and I decided on the act at a party last night at which there were guests, more guests, and assorted sundries. I see. So, we have to find something more specific. Uh, check? Uh, check. Punching is out. He knows from loving even less. Uh, check? Uh, check. Yeah. Well, uh, let's see. There's, uh, Harvey Hollis. Harvey Hollis? Yeah. Used to be in love with Shirley. Maybe still is. So he could have killed Bud to get Shirley Anderson for himself. Not knowing they'd had a fight. That's it. But I doubt it. However, I can't overlook any possibilities. But my money is still on... Miss Anderson herself? Definitely. Had a fight with Bud. She was at the party. So, motive, knowledge, all she needed was the opportunity. Uh, check? Uh, check. <sighs> then what are we waiting for? Bill. Waste of time. The time is... I know, of... I know. Of the essence. That wouldn't be running away. You'd be with me. And you could call Bill from Shirley's. He could meet us there. Well, Jerry... I am not one to be framed for murder and take it lying down. To say nothing about a conk on the noggin. Which you did take, lying down. Well, I must have satisfaction. It's up to me to crack this case. I think he's right, Jerry. Come on, let's go to Miss Anderson's with him. Well... You said that before. Come on, Pam, let you and me go. Jerry can join us if he wants to. Now, wait a minute. But time is... of the essence. Okay, okay, come on, let's go. <laughs> Hello, Shirley. I want you to meet Mr. and Mrs. North. Oh, how too, too exciting. I've heard so much about you and everything. How did it go? What? The act. You and Bud Frisbee. Oh, did it work? It must be too, too exciting to work out a perfect crime. I'd love to do it. Except that if you did, really, I mean, how would anyone know? And if they didn't, what fun would it be? Oh, come on in. Thank you. Stuart here, Frisbee. You know him, Stuart Payne. He was at the party last night. Yes. Oh, Dude, look who's here. Oh, hello there, Frisbee. Hello. Dude, this is Mr. and Mrs. North. You know, the Mr. and Mrs. North. I do. I do. How do you do? Oh, Frisbee, you haven't told me. Did you fool Mr. North? I'm simply bursting. You didn't mind, did you, Mr. North? I think it was such a cute idea. Quake, that's the word for it. Did you, Frisbee? Shirley, somebody killed Bud. I know, you did. I, I mean, really. 
I beg your pardon? I pretended to kill him and pushed him into a doorway. Somebody must have been hiding in there and really killed him. What? That's impossible. Why is it impossible, Mr. Payne? Well, I mean, why would anyone want to... I don't know, but somebody did. Mom always wanted me to be an actress, but I never any good, even though my profile does look something like Catherine Hepburn. Well, I suppose I'll be suspected, won't I? Because you look like Catherine Hepburn? Because I can't act like Catherine Hepburn. Oh, oh just think what Bernhardt would have done with a moment like this. Oh, Beth Davis, I think she's terrific, don't you? Simply terrific. Aren't we somehow getting away from the point, Miss Anderson? Oh, no, not at all, Mr. North. My lover has just been killed. It's, at least he's supposed to be my lover. If I could make it with the hysterics and stuff, you'd all be pitying me and sniffling and saying, there, there, poor little girl. <clears throat> I see. Shirley, you hated Bud, didn't you? No, Frisbee, but I do think that he was a thinker. If you'll pardon my saying so. She's upset. She doesn't realize what she's saying. I think she does. In fact, I know she does. She loved Bud. Why should uh-huh, she have wanted... But he done her dirt, ditched her, and hell hath no fury, etc., etc., et That's not so. Bud and Shirley are... are... all washed up, Sue. Let's face it. Shirley, you didn't kill Bud. Of course not, silly. Well, then why keep on saying things like... They happen to be the truth. Mr. North. Yes? I killed Bud. Sue, you didn't. Excellent, excellent. It all fits. Does it, Frisbee? Yes, I couldn't have done it better myself. What do you mean? The perfect build-up to the confession. Sort of like my handling of Death Rides a Pogo Stick, don't you think, Jerry? Yeah. Sue's lying, Mr. North. He didn't kill Bud. He couldn't have. Why not? Well, he... Well, I, I mean, he's just not the type. I mean, I know him. I... Oh, dear, I don't know what I mean. I tell you, I killed Bud. Then I suppose you stole the letter, too. What letter? About Shirley's fight with Bud. Okay, as long as you know about it anyway, it doesn't make any difference. Here. Here it is. Let's see it. There you are. Thank you. Is it, Frisbee? Uh-huh. This is it. Now, do you believe me? Oh, story. Miss Anderson, may I use your telephone, please? Oh, yes, of course. Oh, Stu, this isn't like you at all. It positively isn't. What? Going around killing people. Whatever made you do it? Sure, Bud was a stinker, but even so... In fact, he was a terrific stinker. He was... Oh, you know, Stu, I don't blame oh, you. Oh, stop it, Shirley. Hello, Bill. I thought I'd be able to get you at Barnes' apartment. Us? Well, we're at a Miss Anderson. Well, I know I said we'd stay there, but... But, Bill. But, Bill. He's angry. Well, Bill, you don't understand. We have the murderer for you. What's that? You don't say. Okay, well, we'll wait here anyway. Yes, honestly, we won't budge until you get here. Okay, so long. Well, what do you know? I don't know, Jerry. What do you know? I told Bill we'd caught the murderer. Yes. Well, he said, so has he. Huh? Excellent. A nice twist, a very nice twist. There now, Stu, I told you it wasn't you. Who was it, Mr. North? Harvey Hollis. Oh, no. Oh, yes. That's why you had the fight with Bud, Miss Anderson. You had jilted him for Mr. Hollis. What's that? Miss Anderson jilted Bud for Hollis, and Bud threatened to kill Hollis. Hollis has admitted that much. No, no, it's not true. So Hollis must have killed Bud in self-protection. Bill's holding him. He says he has proof Hollis is the murderer. What a fool. What a complete and absolute fool. Who? Me. To think that... Oh, what? There he goes. Hey, wait a minute. He's getting away, Jerry. We've got to stop him. Come on. We're following him. He's speeding. Yeah. Drive it. Don't let him get away. 
He turned the corner. So did we. Oh, golly. Uh, exciting, but sort of pointless, don't you think? Not if we want to catch pain. But do we? What do you mean, Frisbee? Of course we do. See, Frisbee, Hollis didn't really kill Bud. Oh, I know that. The dog driver, a car just cut in in front of us. Jerry. Jerry, are you all right? Yes, darling. Are you? I, I, I don't know. Uh, Oh, okay, Jerry. You win. What do I win? My surrender. Unconditional. I'm a man of deep sensitivity. Auto crashes, bangs on the belfry. Not for me. Have your bill arrest me. What's the third degree compared to this? Oh, don't worry, Frisbee. He won't arrest uh, you. Because we know who the murderer is now. So do I, but the police won't believe it. I think they will, Frisbee. If we ever stand still long enough for them to get to us. Well, Mr. Payne's gotten away, so I guess the thing for us to do is to go back to Miss Anderson's and wait for Bill there. Yeah. Well, I certainly hope he'll listen to you. Because I'm kind of allergic to being beaten with a rubber hose. Anderson, we've come back. Oh, that's too bad. Thank you. I mean, Lieutenant Wigan will be very angry. Well, why? We told him we'd meet him here. I know, but you didn't. Do you mean he's been here? Oh, yes. Where did he go? Out looking for you. Well, maybe we better go look for him. Round and round we go. Oh, no, we don't. We're staying here, if Miss Anderson doesn't object. Not at all. Not at all. Come in. Thank you. Come in and sit down and tell me all about it. Who did it? It couldn't be Harvey, you know. That's absurd. Besides, Harvey had nothing to do with my breaking off with Bud. I know that, Miss Anderson. Bill didn't say anything about Harvey. I just made that up to see what Payne would do. What did he do? Didn't you see? He ran away. But where did he go? We don't know. He got away. Well, it doesn't matter anyway, because he's not the murderer. Oh, good. But how do you know, Frisbee? Well, it's obvious. He only confessed to protect you. Why, how romantic. Are you sure? Well, of course. That's the way it's always done. Always? In his stories. But then, who really killed Bud? Well, well you he... see... Oh, sorry, sorry Pat. There's, There's only, only one, one person, person who... Would... Uh... <laughs> sorry, Pat. Oh, that's all right, Frisbee. Uh, what were you going to say? What was I going to say? I, I, I was just going to tell her the name of the murderer. It's Cuthbert Willis. Who? Cuthbert Willis. Who's he? A little man who claims he saw me kill Bud. What makes you think it was Mr. Willis, Frisbee? Well, it's simple. Nothing points to him. What do you mean? The least suspicious character, don't you see? Oh, Frisbee. I hate to disappoint you again, old man, but I'm afraid it isn't Willis. It must be. No. Well, that means Shirley. Really, Frisbee, really. No gentleman would accuse a girl of murder in her own parlor, even if it were true, which it isn't. Well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. It wasn't my idea. No, mine. But, Jerry, you said... I said it wasn't Willis. But that only leaves Shirley and Stewart. And don't you agree that his confession was just to protect her? Of course he confessed to protect her. Well, he's obviously in love with her. Well, that's just the point. I don't get it. Well, as I see it, Payne was so much in love with Miss Anderson that he killed the man she was engaged to in order to be able to have her for himself. Not knowing that she'd already had a fight with a fiancé. Then when he found out about the fight... And found there were letters proving there had been a fight. He had to get those letters to keep her from being accused of the murder. And then when that didn't work... He was willing to give himself up rather than to see her arrested. Then the confession was on the level? That's right, Frisbee. Huh. Interesting twist. I'll have to try that sometime. But if it's Stuart Payne, how are we going to catch him? He's already made his getaway. Well, perhaps he'll be back. I'm afraid not. Well, Frisbee, if this were one of your stories, he'd walk in just about now with a gun in his hand. Oh, no. I'd never use that. Why not? Boy, it'd be too convenient. It'd seem contrived. Would it, Frisbee? Do. Yes, it's me. 
And as you see, I have the gun, too. That's what I went for. Unbelievable. No, it isn't, Brinsley. And it isn't contrived. I sort of had an idea he'd be back. Yes, you're right. I am back. Surely I loved you. I'd have done anything for you. I'd have stolen for you. I'd have killed for you. I did kill for you. What did I get out of it? First it was Bud, and now Harvey. No, Stu, that's not true. Mr. North just made up that story about Harvey. I don't believe it. It's so. I just wanted to see what you'd do. You can't fool me. I know her. She never loved me. She never will. Well, all right, I'll fix her. I'll kill her. No, Stuart. Mr. Payne, look out behind you. What? Right. Stop that gun. Mr. North, you knocked him out. Call the phone. I'll get it. Oh, this is too much. This is positively too much. What's the matter, Frisbee? Oh, it's bad enough that my perfect murder failed and the confession was on the level and the murderer shows up right on cue. But for you to get the gun away from it with that oldie, look out behind you. Oh, 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 Pam. No, no, no. Mr. North, that was Lieutenant Wigand on the phone. He wanted to know where you were. I told him you were back here again. But didn't he want to talk to us? No. He said he doesn't like to use that kind of language on the telephone. Well, darling, Payne has confessed again to the police this time. Well, I hope Frisbee believes him this time. Well, I hope so, too. He should have believed him the first time, as soon as he saw the letter. Well, of course he should have. Mr. Payne pretended that he didn't know anything about the murder until we told him. But he stole the letter before we told him. That's right. That clinched it. Yes, darling. Oh, oh poor Frisbee. Nothing worked out the way he'd have done it. Well, maybe we can give him his ending at least. What's that, dear? Well, at this point in all of his adventures of Mr. and Mrs. Wallaby, Mr. and Mrs. Wallaby retire. <laughs> Try that. 
Don't, don't let them hang you, please. Will you pull yourself together, please? Just give me time. Just give me some time and let me think. I was wrong. Mr. Crosby, I'll come back later. No. No, don't leave me. But I... Well? Well, Mrs. Crosby? Well, they... Well, whoever has the original letter, sell it? Why, yes, I think so. Who has it? For a Chinese woman who's living in Hannon Park. The Chinese woman. Does she want very much for it? Mm, maybe she wants a very large sum. Mr. George, are you going to let them hang me because of a paltry sum of money? What? Now, you think it's so simple as all that to secure possession of that letter? Why, you have no right to make any such suggestion to me. Well, then what will happen to me? Well, you should have thought of that before. Justice must take its course. Oh, please, Mr. George, please. I'm putting myself in your hands. I know that I have no right to ask you to do anything that isn't proper, but you must do everything you can to help me. Mr. Joyce, you're my counsel. Now, who else will help me? You've got to. You've got to help me, Mr. Joyce. Now, please. I'm getting down on my Mrs. knees. Crosby, Mr. Crosby, please, George, stop it. Could your husband raise the money? Yes, I'm sure he could. Well, you know that he'd have to be told what it was for. Yes, but does he have to see the letter? He's in love with me, Mr. George. He'd make any sacrifice to save me. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not Robert, sure that an I... old friend of yours. Now, I'm not asking you to do anything for me. I'm asking you to save a rather simple, kind man who never did you any harm from, from all the pain that's possible. Mrs. Crosby. All right. I'll help you. But on one condition. Yes. Now, you told me the truth about the letter. Now, will you tell me the truth about that night? Oh, yes, yes, I will, I will. All right. Did you, or did you not shoot Hammond in self-defense? Well, of course it was in self-defense. I swear to you, Mr. Joyce, it was in self-defense. You've got to believe me, you must help me. Please, Mr. Joyce, I'm placing my life in your hands. I wouldn't lie to you now, I wouldn't. Very well, Mr. Transit. I, uh, I must go now. Mr. George, what are you going to do? Do? I don't know. Yes, creeps. Next time, we are going to go dramatic. Yes, it's one of the classic stories of its kind, written by the fine English author, Somerset Maugham. So be in your seats next time, ready for the curtain on the letter. This is Peter Laurie, closing the doors of the Mystery Playhouse. Good night. Good night.
a couple of weeks after the last New Year's of World War II, an episode of Mr. and Mrs. North, as rebroadcast by Armed Forces Radio in its series, Mystery Playhouse. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Speaking of the Second World War, we've mentioned quite a few times in our observance of its 75th anniversary that radio really embraced its role of raising the morale of the Americans here on the home front and strengthening the national will for victory. But not many shows tried to do both jobs through the use of comedy as directly as the one we're about to hear. It's a fantasy about the future and about children yet to be born, produced by the Columbia Workshop. The audio quality is a little rough, but it's an extraordinary program, so please bear with it. Among the topics satirized are the then-current labor management struggles, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt's daily newspaper column, the radio show Quiz Kids, the magazine's Time, Life, and Variety, and some recently violated international treaties. From just three weeks after Pearl Harbor, when the question in the title might well have been on the minds of millions of Americans, it's called, Who Wants to Be Born These Days? And it comes from CBS's The Columbia Workshop. Who wants to be born these days? It's a baby boy, Mr. Smith. Seven pounds, five ounces. It's a baby girl, Senor Gonzalez. Eight pounds, one ounce. Sure, it's a baby boy, Mr. O'Hara. Seven pounds, even. And then one day, there were none. symbol of the new year. For its new year's program, the Columbia Workshop is going to tell you not about one baby, not about hundreds of babies, but about thousands of babies. Who wants to be born these days? Adapted for radio by Jerry Schwartz and Stanley Rubin from their book of the same name. Charles Vander is our director. Original music is by Alexander Sennler. Clumsy, can't you stay up on your feet? 
Johnny. Hey. What's the matter with Johnny? He tore a hole in the sky, and and he looked through it. But that's wicked. Your end the morning will be fallen. Ladies and gentlemen of the Beforeland, we have been duped. Duped? What does that mean? We have been cheated, deceived, misinformed, and, I might say completely, buffaloed. Oh, what do you call it? You know what I just got through that hole? <laughs> well, it's somebody's birthday. Guess who's? <laughs> well, I uh, How are you babies today? Huh? Oh, we've always had a lot of fun guessing. Come on now. Who do you think it is? Huh? <laughs> I'll tell you that. You're the lucky fellow, Johnny. Me? That's right. You're expected any minute. Johnny, what's this all about? I, I refuse to be born. You refuse? Huh? I saw a hole in the sky. I didn't mean to, but I did, and I, I looked through it, and I saw the earth, and it's awful, and I refuse to be born. Well, this certainly beats all. Aren't you going to do anything, John? Oh, no siree. This is way out of my jurisdiction. I, I'll have to consult the authorities about this. <laughs> Unfair to unborn baby. Unfair to unborn baby. Unfair to 
it. There are a lot of things babies know, but they don't let on about. They might call it baby diplomacy. You see, babies like to humor grown-ups and make them think they're teaching us things. You don't believe me? Well, the next time you look at a baby, kind of notice the wise look in his eyes. He knows what's going on. But let's get back to our story. We bunched together some of the clouds and shaped them into megaphones to try to tell the earth what we thought of it. Unfair to unborn babies. Unborn baby. Okay, Tommy, you're next. Now speak into the small end. Hey, Earth, you're in an awful mess. Hey, Earth, you're in an awful mess. Back, stop, picketing. Well, here comes Uncle Pete. Oh, I don't want What's all this you got rigged up here? What what have you done to the clouds? We're telling the earth what we think of them. That ought to fix things. <sighs> no use, Johnny. Why? What do the authorities have to say, Uncle Pete? Well, son, you caught them all with their wings down. Mr. Pete, I want to be born. Andy! Oh, my goodness, how could you do that, Andy? You're the only one who didn't look. I don't have to look. I'm happy to believe it's all a very nice place, and I'd like to be born. Sorry, Andy, you're just not due yet. You're too young. How old am I? Next week, you'll be minus 39 years old. Good. Well, babies, if... uh, I don't know if you're as innocent as you look, but what you've got here is a strike. And when there's labor trouble up here, that's mighty serious. under my cloud blanket when suddenly a sound awakened me. It was Andy slipping away in the night. Much as Ned thought Slater, he certainly had courage. Because none of us babies had ever been up a night before. But I suspected he was going to tell us out. So I followed him. Gosh, scary. was a frightening sound, and Andy saw what I saw. <laughs> it was Uncle Pete asleep. <laughs> Mr. Pete, Mr. Pete, wake up, Mr. Pete. Wake up, please, wake up, Mr. Pete. Uh-huh. 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 What, what? Uh-huh. Oh. Andy, what are you doing up at night? I came to tell you that I'm on your side, Mr. Pete. Uh-huh. I'm willing to be born. Yeah, well, Andy, you... Uh, you can't just be born with a snap of the fingers. Your parents have to want you. Is that important? Oh, it's very important. Imagine being born to somebody who didn't want you. That sounds terrible. It is, Andy. I guess you better run on back to bed. I'm scared now. I'm afraid to go back alone. I'll take you back, yeah. Andy. Oh, Johnny. Hey, this night walking's getting to be quite a habit. I came to get my friend, Andy. Thanks, Johnny. 
I was afraid you'd be awfully mad at me. I was. But that's all over now. Come on, take my hand. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> hey, what am I laughing about? When they start sticking together like that, it really means trouble. Board. We've got to settle this thing. How come? Prayers. Never heard so many of them in all my days. The biggest shipment of them since the fall of Jericho. And all for you kids. We can't handle such a volume of business. So, uh, young fella, we have to do something about it. I say let them pray. So do I. Now, now, look here, kids. I'd suggest sitting down and, uh, talking things over. There's nothing more to say. We're just going to stay up here. Now, wait a minute. You can't do that. If you're not born, within 90 or 100 years, there won't be a soul left on Earth. Well, that would be swell for the soul. Maybe later on, we'll go down. Well, there's nobody left there, and then we can start doing things right. Uh-huh. Well, there's one little thing you're forgetting. If you wait that long, you'll never be able to be born. Well, Don't you see? Don't you see? There'd be nobody left to be born to. And every baby's got to have a father and a mother. It's in the rule book. Now, look, you, you babies have some very fine ideas. So, why don't you start being born? I'll take them down with you. Uncle Keith, from the way we see it, it can't work. You can't speak on earth until you're four or five years old. And in some places, never, really. That's not for us. We refuse to mediate. <laughs> Uh, uh, you're sure you wouldn't care to uh, discuss terms before I leave? Well, if you'd give us a minute, Uncle Pete, I, I think we'll talk it over among ourselves. Oh, uh, sure, Johnny. Right ahead. Teach me how babies get smarter and smarter all the time. Well, uh, all right, Uncle Pete. Um, we've got terms for you. Uh, well, uh, let's hear Let's hear them. They, they, they might be a little unusual, but we feel this is very important. So here's what we want. Send one baby down to us. Uncle Pete certainly didn't waste any time with the terms we gave him. He was back in a couple of hours. The terms have been okayed. <laughs> right now, there's a pleasure getting back to work again. <laughs> well, who's it going to be? Huh? We forgot all about that. Well, well who is that? Who's uh, eligible? Um, well, let me consult this scroll. Yeah, quite a few piled up. As a matter of fact, any number of you are not only due, you're overdue. Um, there's Gregory, Gwendolyn, and Tommy, and Michelle, and... It... Why, yes, uh, there's you, Johnny. Johnny. Johnny, of course. Johnny, he's our man. Johnny's the one. All those in favor, say aye. The ayes have it. Johnny, you're elected. Congratulations, old man. Uh, but, uh, but, but, 
This is the threshold of life. Hi. Yeah. Well, let's put this on now. Oh, what is it? It's just your little parachute, Johnny. Let me tell you how to use it. You step over the threshold, count ten, and you pull the cord. Oh, oh now you, you don't have to hold your nose when you jump. born just a few minutes ago, is reaching for the bars of his crib. He's, he's slowly pulling himself to his feet. He's wobbling just a bit. But there he is, standing up. It's true, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it yourself. He, he did speak. And now he... I, I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. I, I can't talk.
presented Who Wants to Be Born These Days, based on a book by Jerry Schwartz and Stanley Rubin and featuring Dolores Gillen as Johnny. Director of the program was Charles Vanda, Western Program Director of CBS. Original music was composed and conducted by Alexander Samler. Columbia Workshop was presented from New York, and next week offers The Fish on the Bathroom Floor, written by Thomas Lyle Collins and directed by Howard G. Barnes. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. From 78 years ago yesterday, December 28, 1941, the fanciful story, Who Wants to Be Born These Days, from the Columbia Workshop, 
and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey. Our audio engineer is Douglas Bell. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. Among the movies released on Christmas Day last week was Greta Gerwig's adaptation of an American classic, Little Women. The film stars Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper, and Laura Dern, among others. It's the eighth time the novel has been made into a movie, and this new version is already on the American Film Institute and Time Magazine's ten best lists. It's a departure from Louisa May Alcott's original, so Jill and I thought that, just for context, this would be a good time to listen to a more traditional radio adaptation, one that features the star of George Cukor's 1933 film of Little Women, Catherine Hepburn. From Christmas time in 1945, it's ABC's Theater Guild on the Air, and its production of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. The United States Steel Corporation... Half a million employees and stockholders presents the Theater Guild on the Air. The United States Steel Corporation presents the Theater Guild. One of America's foremost theatrical producers. Bringing into your home every Sunday evening from the stage of the Vanderbilt Theater in New York. The most famous plays of Broadway. Tonight is a special Christmas offering. We bring you Louisa May Alcott's beloved story, Little Women. Starring Catherine Hepburn as Joe. And featuring Oscar Homolka as the professor. John Lodge as Brooke. Francis Reed as Meg. Judith Parrish as Amy. Susan Douglas as Beth, and Elliot Reed as Laurie. And here is Lawrence Langner, co-director with Teresa Halburn of the Theatre Guild, to tell you something about the play and the players. Mr. Langner. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sure most of you listening tonight remember Joe, Amy, Beth, and Meg... The four March girls immortalized by Louisa May Alcott in Little Women. Their shy romances and courage and adversity have endeared them to generations of Americans. Little Women is classified as fiction, but it's pretty common knowledge that Miss Alcott was writing about her own family. And of course, in the case of the resolute auburn-haired Joe, she was writing about herself. I can think of no more fitting play for Christmas than Little Women. Because in tender fashion, in the fashion of three-quarters of a century ago, it's a simple and eloquent argument for kindness and goodwill. I think it's fitting, too, that tonight Catherine Hepburn should play Joe, a role in which she was most successful on the screen. Kate Hepburn is a great favorite with the Theatre Guild. I'm sure many of you enjoyed her in our stage productions of Jane Eyre, The Philadelphia Story, and Without Love. Our cast tonight also includes Oscar Homolka, one of the stars of the Broadway success I Remember Mama. He plays the part of the professor. And now the curtain rises on Little Women. 
late afternoon on a Christmas day many years ago in Civil War times. We're in New England, in the home of the March family. By the light of the fire, we can see four girls grouped together. Three are sitting rather primly in their chairs, sewing. But the fourth is lying on the floor, with her long legs, dressed in pantalettes, stretched out. She reminds you a little of a healthy young colt. Looking up at the ceiling, she says, Christopher Columbus, it's awful to be poor. I don't like it one bit. That's Joe. Joe, I wish you wouldn't lie on the floor. The time comes when we have to put aside such romping ways. And please, don't say Christopher Columbus. That's Meg, a proper young lady very conscious of the approach of womanhood. Still, Joe's right. It isn't fair for some girls to have pretty things. Pretty boots, pretty gloves, pretty petticoats and pretty handkerchiefs. And for us to have nothing. And that's Amy. A little vain and fond of luxury. Still, we have each other, and we have mommy, and we have father, even though he's far away. And that's Beth, who loves her piano and is a ray of sunshine in the house. And there, grouped together on a Christmas day in Civil War times, are the little women. seems so long ago. Father was away serving as a chaplain to the armies at the front. Mommy had tried all the harder to make it like one of the old Christmases. She'd fixed us a wonderful Christmas breakfast. Sausages, popovers, pie. But at the last moment, we learned about a family who were even harder up than we. So we took them our breakfast. And then it didn't seem like Christmas at all. And for a while, we just sat feeling glum. But then something happened, a great event in our lives. The doorbell rang. We looked at each other, wondering. Mommy went to the door. Yes? Uh, how do you do? Uh, Mr. Lawrence next door sends his compliments. He heard about your children giving away their breakfast, so he sent this by way of appreciation and to make up for what they've done. Why, it's... Open it. They'll like it. It's awfully good. Goodbye. Children, look a dinner for you. Oh, children, cranberry ice cream. Oh, oh, to think that Mr. Lawrence sent well, it. they hardly know us. They've never even paid the slightest attention to us. We've never even spoken with them. I'm sure it was all the boy's idea since he brought it. Oh, he did look nice. What does it all mean? Maybe it means they want to know us better. <laughs> That's what we hoped. Because for years we'd looked across longingly toward the fine Lawrence home next door. But the days went by and we heard no more from the Lawrences. Then one gray afternoon, the four of us were together. Meg, Amy, Beth, and I. Amy was drawing. Meg and Beth were knitting. I do feel properly sad. I'm as sad and drippy as the day. So am I. Christopher Columbus, I'm going to do something. Joe, such slang. I like strong words that mean something. And strong actions, too. What are you going to do, I Joe? don't know, but something. 
Are we going to sit here and be dismal? What else can we do? Believe me, when I'm a famous authoress and have made a lot of money from my stories, I'm not going to sit around feeling mopey and sighing and waiting for things to come to us. I'm going after whatever we want and deserve and should have. Have you finished the story you were going to send away, Joe? Almost. A couple of pages more and it'll be finished. What else is going to happen? Oh, just that... Well... Hugo gets a potion from the witch to make Zara love him, and another to kill Roderigo. The potions are switched. Hugo dies in agony. Then Roderigo in his cell tears his chains apart in a spasm of rapture and goes to confront Don Pedro. Don Pedro runs a sword through him. Roderigo rolls dead down the circular stairway, and Don Pedro hurls himself from the parapet to the rocks below. It's just a matter of cleaning up loose ends. Two pages will do it. <laughs> oh, it'll be wonderful. Joe, it's the best you've ever read. You want to write a sequel? She can't. The characters are all dead, lying on rocks and parapets. I can easily think up more characters. I wish the stories were a little more tender sometimes. Rodrigo never even had a chance to express his love for Zara. Oh, we can assume they love each other. I want action, not love. Makes me sick the way women behave in stories. How do they behave? Dreadfully. First they blush all over the place. That means love has done its fatal work. Then the lovers start having keepsakes that they moon over. It's all disgusting. Joe, such language. I hope none of us ever start behaving that way. You remember that, girls, because if you do, I'll hate you. I'll just hate you. If only things could happen in life like they do in stories, the nice things. Well, why can't they? It's a matter of making them happen. Now, for instance, that house over there, the Lawrence Mansion, that's what I was thinking about. What about What do you mean? Well, now, look, look, see up there? The Lawrence boy is sitting in the solarium again. Yes. All bundled up. Laurie, they call him. Oh. He's been shut up since Christmas with a cold or something. His old mm. grandfather's awfully strict with him. Oh, I know. Makes him study all the time, poor fellow. Looks like fun, too. His tutor will be in in a little while, and they'll sit there with his lessons from four till six. I've watched them. There are four men over there. A grandfather, a tutor, a boy, and a butler. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pay him a visit right now. Sure. Of all the improper suggestions. Well, why not, Meg? We've lived next to them for years. But we don't know them. We haven't been introduced. I'm sure they want to know us. Why else would they send us that Christmas That eat? was very kind of them, and Mommy has written to thank them. Does it have to end there? Oh, it makes me angry. Now, look. I'm going to get a dish of blancmange, and I'll simply go over... Joe, and... if you ever do such an unladylike thing... What'll you do? Mommy will be mortified. She's often said it's nice to be neighborly, and I'm going to be neighborly. Joe! Anybody want to come? Don't you dare. It's wrong. It's rash. It, it isn't nice. Christopher Columbus, I'm going. Master Lawrence, will you now explain to me the circumstances of Catiline's conspiracies as revealed in the orations of Cicero? Uh, Catiline's conspiracy. Uh, Catiline conspired uh, with some other people, uh, didn't he? Yeah, correct so far. Continue. Uh, let's see. Uh, Cicero... Uh, Master Lawrence, uh, your eye keeps wandering to the window of the house next door. Please keep your mind on your lesson. I'm sorry, sir. It, it looks so jolly over there. At the window where the flowers are, they seldom close the curtains, and all grouped around like that with a light from the fire, it, it looks so cheerful. Yes, no doubt. Continue. Yes, sir. Uh, Catiline... Hi, Joe. That is a pleasing picture over there. The family group around the hearth. Yes, sir. Delightful. 
Uh, now then, uh, what were we talking about? Uh, the rivers of France. Oh, yes. Uh, please name the four chief rivers of France. No, uh, we weren't, sir. Huh? We were uh, talking about Catiline. Uh, Catiline? Yes, oh. sir. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Uh, uh, pardon me, Mr. Brooke, but a young lady from next door is here and says she's come to visit Master Lawrence. What? She has some blancmange with her. Oh, jolly. Can't we let her in? But Mr. Lawrence has given strict orders that the young master is to stay in the solarium and see no one except you, sir, for his lesson. Quite right, he has. Until you're absolutely better. But I'm all right, sir. I... We'll have to say Master Lawrence is not receiving the master's orders. I've told her. So now she insists on seeing the master. She says the orders are a great mistake, and she wants to tell him so. Good heavens. <laughs> I, I, I think you'd better talk to her, Mr. Brooks. I'd better. Master Lawrence, please stay here. Is there, uh, anything I can do for you, miss? Uh, yes, sir, there is. I'd like to speak to Mr. Lawrence, please. Well, he's in his study, and, uh, we, we oh? never disturb him in his study. Are you afraid of him? Miss, we obey his instructions. Oh, which is his study? Because I'd like to speak to him a moment, and I'll go in myself, if you don't mind. Well, really, I, I, I don't think that is, I mean, I... Why are you I... all so afraid of him? I'm sure he's really a kind man at heart. I'm not afraid of him because he's already shown that Watch this. He... Watch this. Uh, Who's not afraid of who? Oh, Mr. Uh, Lawrence, uh, I, I, I don't... Uh, 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 Mr. Mr. Lawrence, uh, uh, we, we were just talking about you. Indeed? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, um, I, I was saying I was sure you were really a kind man at heart. After all, you sent us that wonderful dinner at Christmas time and... Ah, yes, my grandson's idea. Well, I know that your grandson has been sick, and so I brought over some blancmange we made this morning. It'll slide down his throat easily and... How charming of you. Mr. Brooke, why are you standing here in the hall arguing with this young lady? Well, sir, I... I, I don't Everybody know. Everybody seemed to think I'd broken the rules of the household, so I wanted to talk to you, Mr. Lawrence. Sir... Don't you think you're really too strict with the boy? Miss Marsh, I really think that Just you... Just a second, Mr. Brooke. Let her go on. You see, I think you have too many rules here. Your grandson so seldom gets out, and he studies so hard. Now, now, if he could come to our house for tea now and then and have some fun, I'm sure it would do him good. <laughs> so you think I'm too harsh with him, eh? And you're not afraid of me. Well, bless you. Maybe I'd do watch over him like an old grandmother. You see, we lost his father and mother long ago. And so he's my responsibility. But I'm sure no harm could come to him in that delightful home of yours. So I'll tell you what. Tomorrow the boy shall come to you for tea. If he won't be in the way. Indeed he won't. You're very kind to invite him. And now, Mr. Brooke... Will you escort this young lady safely back to her house? <laughs> I'm not a young lady, sir, and I don't need to be escorted. Nonsense. You shan't go alone. <laughs> Mr. Brooke. Yes, sir. Uh, my uh, my arm, Miss March? Well. Give my regards to your family, Miss March. Oh, I will indeed, sir. <laughs> uh, uh, um, don't you think it's a little silly escorting me 40 yards across the lawn to my own house? Well, we... we... We couldn't let you go alone. <laughs> I've been running around here since I was a child. Yes, but you're you're not a child now, miss. That is hardly... Oh, look out for that ice, Mr. Brooke. Oh, thank you. You're Master Lawrence's tutor, aren't you, sir? Ye yes, I am. You must be very learned. Well, the more one learns, the more one finds to be learned, Miss March. How true that must be. Uh, miss March, are you... Uh... Uh, you are the uh, uh, second of the four sisters? Yes, I'm Joe. The oldest is Meg. Oh, oh, yes. She's the pretty one with the blonde hair. She's lovely. Meg. 
Oh, yes. Well, here we are, Mr. Brooke. It was nice of you to... Joe, Joe, did you actually... Meg, Meg, dear. Oh. I, I'd like you to meet Mr. Brooke, Master Lawrence's tutor. How... How do you do? Oh, how do you do? I'm... I'm charmed. And, and, and now I... Well, I must return. Uh, good day, Miss March, and, uh, Miss March. Good day, Mr. Good day, Mr. Brooke, and, uh, thank you. Joe, oh, how could you? How could you? Oh, Meg, Meg, they were awfully nice to me. Really, Meg? Why, Meg, you're blushing. From that day on, we saw quite a bit of the Lawrence family. The boy, Laurie, often came to our house. But I couldn't have foreseen then all that my neighborly visit would lead to. One spring day in the garden with Laurie, I was reading him a story I'd just finished. Go on, go on. The Count stood as one changed to stone. And turning to the bewildered crowd, Ferdinand added, with a mysterious smile upon his lips, To you, my gallant friends, I can only wish that your wooing may prosper as mine has done, and that you may all win as fair a bride as I have by my masked marriage. Joe, it's... It's capital. Christopher Columbus. I took it to the newspaper office yesterday. Nobody in the family knows I'm, I'm to hear the editor's verdict next week. Josephine, March, a real author. If they use that story, they'll pay me $1.50 for it. <laughs> in time, I can help support the family. And now, I have a secret for you. Well, out with it. Oh, this is rich. You promise not to tell. Come on, now. Well, you remember last week Meg was looking for a glove she lost? At the party you gave, Yop. Well? Have you found it? No, but, uh... <clears throat> Why are you so mysterious? I, uh, know where it is. Where? Well... Come on, tell me. Mr. Brooke. What about him? His pocket. You mean... You mean Mr. Brooke has it in his pocket? His inside pocket. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I caught him looking at it this morning. When I came in the room, he quickly stuffed it away and looked in the other direction. <laughs> well, what do you think? But they've hardly ever spoken. Well, that's not necessary. <laughs> I think it's dreadful. Why, what's the matter? It's awful. I don't know why you think it's so funny. Oh, I, I thought it was jolly. I, I thought you'd be pleased. Pleased? Oh, I hate this sort of thing. Love a business. I hate it. I thought I was bringing you some plummy news. Don't you see, Laurie? Our family's always been so close. We mean so much to each other. And now this means it's all going to change. If Meg leaves, it'll never be the same. It'll all break up and... Oh, I hope she doesn't go. Joe, why should you feel that way? I do, that's all. Joe? Yes, Mommy? Could you come in the house a minute? All right, Mommy. There's a something I must tell you. Amy! Bez, come downstairs. Family meeting. Coming. Mommy! What's it about? I don't know. Don't you know? No, what is it, Mommy? Well, you'll hear in a moment. Coming. What's it about? We're all here now. You look worried, Mommy. Children, I want you to be brave. It's about your father. Oh, father? Mommy. A telegram has just come. Oh, oh. Your husband is very ill in Washington Hospital. Oh. Please come at once. Oh, no. Now, now, don't cry, children. Now, above all, we must think clearly and quickly and face our tasks. I must leave for Washington tonight to be with your father. The train goes at 8 o'clock. Don't cry, Beth. I won't, Mommy. Joe, I've written a letter to Aunt March. For your father, I'm not ashamed to beg for my relatives. I've asked her for money for the trip here. Without it, I can't afford to go. Will you take it and do all you can to persuade her? She'll croak about it something awful. 
She has such a temper. I know, but we must try. I'll go, Mommy. Meg, I want you to get my black leather trunk from the attic. What's this? A trip to Washington? <laughs> Stuff and nonsense. Aunt March, you must Oh, please. I always said it was foolishness, your father trotting off to war. Aunt March, I beg you. I told him war's a one for soldiers, not chaplains. Aunt March, listen, please. Now, maybe next time he listen to me and not go off, leaving others to look after his family and treat them to trips to Washington. Aunt March, you have no right to put it that way. Father is sick. Silence, and... girl, and mend your manners. Hmm. Trip to Washington, I say again, Robbie. Stuff and nonsense. Joe back yet. I can't imagine. I'm beginning to get worried. What can she be doing, children? I don't know. She's been gone so long. Mm, I have to go soon. Oh, isn't it just like Joe suddenly to disappear? But Oh, oh the door. I- I'll answer it. Madam. Oh, yes, Mr. Brooks. Uh, Mr. Lawrence, hearing of your trip, has just commissioned me to go to Washington to transact for him certain necessary business there. And, uh, since we shall be traveling on the same train, uh, he instructed me to place myself at your disposal and offer myself as escort for the journey. Uh, Whatever I can, I shall do, both on the journey and in Washington. Oh, Mommy. How generous will you thank Mr. Lawrence. I accept gratefully. Oh, I am am glad, madam. You don't know how reassuring this is to us, Mr. Brooks. I, I am happy to be of service, Miss Meg. The journey to Washington can be a fearful experience, I'm told. Oh, yes. The constant shaking in the dust and the spring rain. Yes, indeed. Sometimes there are floods, I know, and whole bridges collapsing. And portions of the track washed away and and, and simply disappearing. And just knowing that you will be watching over Mother will be a great comfort. Thank you, Miss Megan. May I say... Mommy! Mommy! Oh, Joe, there you are, dear. Oh, thank goodness I'm on time. Oh, Mommy, Aunt March was simply dreadful. She simply said no, just a flat no, so oh, I... Oh, but dear, she did send money over. One of her maids brought it. She must have changed her mind. She sent enough for the train fare. Oh, she did? Well, well, you're going to need a lot more than that. And this will help you. You can buy something Father needs with it. With what, dear? Here, take it. Heaven, Joe! $25. 25 why, Joe. My word. Wherever did you get it? Look. Oh, <gasps> Joe, your hair, your beautiful hair. Yep, I sold it to the wig maker. He gave me that for it. Snipped it right off. Joe, it was your crowning glory. No man will ever be stirred by you now. Oh, well, what do I care for such nonsense? Father is sick. He needs help. I wanted to help him. <laughs> Besides, it'll do my brains good to get that mop off them. Joe, how can you say that about your hair? Oh, Joe, let me hug you, girl. It was a fine thing you did to sacrifice your greatest beauty. Now, Mommy, you, you'd better be going for the train. Oh, Joe, that impetuous spirit of yours that leads to such kind, impulsive deeds. It could also lead to trouble. Watch it when I'm gone, girl. Yes, Mommy. Meg, dear, my womanly Meg, your heart rules your head. See that it doesn't when it shouldn't. I shall, Mommy. Beth, your only fault is fear of what lies before you. Have courage, Beth. I will, Mommy. Amy, we all think so well of you that you sometimes think too well of yourself. Be careful. Yes, Mommy. Now, I must leave you. Be what your father wanted you to be. His little women. 
for the first time in our lives, we were left alone. News came from Washington that Father was improving, and we breathed more easily. Mr. Brooks sent us stiff little bulletins every day, signed... Your faithful and obedient servant, John Brooks. Meg read them aloud over and over again, including the signature. And so, though they were miles apart, this threat to our family seemed to grow and grow. And my heart stood still with fear as I watched her. Then, Meg, Amy, and I were sitting at home early one evening. Beth was out. But Laurie was with us. Joe, stop gloating over that check. Oh, how can I help it? One dollar and fifty cents. It'll pay for some medicine for Father. Of course. And the next time, they'll give me more. Now, this is what I would call a snippy nose. Amy, what on earth are you doing? Is she at that business again? Amy, I wish you wouldn't. What is it? I'm drawing noses. What? I don't like my nose. So she spends time drawing noses she'd like to have if she could choose a different one. <laughs> now, here's an upsy-daisy little nose that I don't like, but some men might. Amy, really? Talking about men and whether they'll like you. Horrid, isn't she? I know you don't like love. <laughs> now, I... girls, girls, really, I... Beth is back. Why is she knocking? That's funny. I'll open it. Well, come in. What's the matter? Stand back. Don't come near me. What is it? You stand back and I'll come in. All right. What is it, Bethy? Mercy, Beth, tell us. I went to the house again. Family mother was looking after the baby had been sick. Tonight I held her while Mrs. Hummel went for the doctor. She died in my arms. Oh, you poor girl. Oh, Amy hasn't had scarlet fever. She must stand oh, back. heavens. Have you had it, Laura? Yes, I have. So have I. Beth. You've been over there three times this week, haven't you? Yes, I have a fever. Doctor told me to come home at once. Bethy, darling, sit down. Your head is like an oven. I'm afraid... Amy, Amy, you've got to leave now. Go to Aunt Marge. I don't want to. You must. You've got to. But I don't want to Amy, leave. please be... Come, Joe. We've got to get Beth to bed. Yes, come on, Bethy, to your room. I'm all right. Come, Joe. dear. We'll help you. That's it. We'll get you into bed, dear. We'll get you into They're bed. They're right, Amy. You've got to leave. Can't I help? Not here, you can't. Why, if you get it to it, it'd be a catastrophe. This is a bad thing. Still, I wish now, I... Now, Amy, look, you can help most by going. Look, I'll follow the example of the worthy Mr. Brooke. I'll put myself in charge of bulletins, and every day I'll drop in on you and let you know how things are. Will you, Laurie? Why, of course, and I'll do even more. I'll bring you surprises. Oh? I'll bring you a flower from our garden every day, and I'll bring you pictures of handsome men and women with interesting noses. <laughs> do you promise, Laurie? Of course. Well, I'll go then. Good girl. Laurie. Yes, Joe. Laurie, could you go for our doctor, Dr. Bangs? Of course, at once. Look, Amy's going to be sensible and go to your aunt's. I'm glad, Amy. I'll go right now. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you go, one thing. We mustn't write a word to Mommy. If we did, she'd come at once and leave Father. That would be dreadful. I'm afraid she would. Not a word. Oh, I could lash myself. If I hadn't been so intent on my stories, I'd have been going to the Hummels instead of Beth. Each time, all three of us left it to her. Joe, don't blame yourself. We'll make it up if we can. Joe... If there's anything I can do, please understand. All I want is to help you in every possible way. Oh, thanks, Laurie. The crisis came a week later. Beth was very sick. And one day as she lay on her bed mumbling incoherently... We finally sent a wire to Mommy. We waited anxiously for her to come. That night, none of us slept. Mr. Lawrence paced in the living room downstairs. Laurie lay on the hearth rug. 
Meg and I stayed in the room with Beth, sleeping in turns at the foot of her bed. The hours went by. What's she doing with her hands? Look. She's... She's playing the piano on the bed covers. Can you tell the tune? It's what she always played. Sing it to her, Meg. She's smiling, Meg. Oh, Meg, don't. I'm so wicked, Joe. No, you're not, Meg. I am. That day Beth went to the Hummels when I wouldn't go. It was because I wanted to sit home and read Mr. Brooks' letters over and over. It was wicked of me. Meg. I've only talked to him three or four times. Mother said that my heart rules my head. She was right. Oh, Joe. If Beth gets better, I'll never let myself have such thoughts again. Don't say that, Meg. God. Help. Beth, get better. There's nothing I won't do. Amen. Meg. Meg, she's breathing more easily. Her forehead is cooler. She's sleeping naturally. The change has come, Meg. Oh. There's the carriage. It's... Stopping at our door. That's Mommy and, and, and there's Father, too. They've come. Oh, wonderful. Oh, Meg, they've come in time. second act of Louisa M. Alcott's classic story, Little Women, starring Catherine Hepburn as Joe and featuring Oscar Homolka as Professor Baird, John Lodge as Brooke, Francis Reed as Meg, Judith Parrish as Amy, Susan Douglas as Beth, and Elliot Reed as Laurie. It's a few weeks later in the home of the Marches. Get ready, Bethy. Here comes Father now. Oh, Daddy comes marching home again. Hooray, hooray. Daddy comes marching home again. Hooray, hooray. The girls were singing, the boys were shouting, the ladies, they will all turn on. You'll all feel gay when Daddy comes marching home. Oh, <laughs> To think I've heard my four girls singing together again. How good that sounded with my little Beth at the piano again. Are you all right, Beth? Oh, yes, Father. But now, Father and Bethy are going back to bed. Come, Beth. Yes, Mommy. It was so good to get up and all be together again. The most joyful reunion party that ever happened. Now you must rest, both of you. We'll go with you, Beth. Thanks, Meg. Amy. Come here. Come in. Joe, why so solemn-faced about a celebration? It's wonderful they're both getting well. Well, then why the gloomy countenance? This house is full of suspense and foreboding. There's an unfinished matter to be settled. It hangs over us like a sword. <laughs> you mean Brooke and Meg? Yes. Mommy came back calling Mr. Brooke John. 
Really? Down in Washington, he spoke to her and father, wondered if he might, at the proper time, address his attentions to Miss Margaret. <laughs> they said yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, have you finally reconciled yourself to the idea? Of course I haven't. I hate it. Why, Joe, do you want me to make you a wager? I'll wager you'll be next, Joe. Please, Laurie, don't say that. Don't you see what's happening? Our whole family is going to smash. <laughs> don't be so melodramatic about it, Joe. I... Uh, I guess I'd better let you get over your gloom, so I'll clear out. What? <laughs> Joe, look there in the hall. Old Brooke left his umbrella in your umbrella stand, the sly dog. I'm sure it's an excuse to come back at the proper moment. Miss Margaret. Oh, Mr. Brooke. Forgive the intrusion, I... I hope it's not untimely. I I came to inquire about your father. That is, I... Well, I came for my umbrella. That is, I... Oh, I... he's in the umbrella stand. I mean, it's doing very nicely, thank you. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Miss Mark. It's so good to see you laughing and, and happiness returning to this home. We owe much of it to you, sir. Oh, does that mean that I might share in this joy? One surely deserves the happiness one brings to others. Margaret, I... Mr. I, Brooke. Are you afraid of me, Margaret? How can I be afraid of one who's been so good to father? Margaret, I... Uh, do you suppose? I mean, is it possible? Can it be? Oh, oh, Margaret, I love you. I love you. Look, Joe, I've been trying to talk to you. I know you have, You Lori. keep running away from me. I know I do. Now, sit still for a moment, Joe. We've got to have this out. No, let's not, Laurie. We're such good friends, don't you see? I, I don't see. That's just what I mean. Oh, look, Joe. After a little more schooling, Grandfather's going to put me to work in one of his offices and... Laurie, please don't go on. But this is what I've been trying to say. I wish you wouldn't. Joe, for months I've been in and out of this house. Do you think I had any reason for coming except to see you? I love you, Joe. Won't you marry me? That's what I was afraid of. Why? Oh, Laurie, I didn't want it to come to this. I so much wanted that you shouldn't get hurt. You've meant so much to me that... But that, that's what I mean, Joe. What we mean to each other. Laurie, I don't love you. Well, couldn't you learn to? No. Love doesn't come that way. I'm... I'm so terribly sorry. Oh, this is kind of a jolt. I, I've banked on this for such a long time. You mustn't anymore, Laurie. This isn't something a person can just put aside. I, I'll ask you again, Joe. I've got to get away. Away? I'm so horrid and restless, and, and with things as they are with Laurie, I've got to leave. What do you want to do, dear? Mommy, you remember that Mrs. Kirk and her two children? She went to New York to start a boarding home. Yes? Well, I thought I might write to her and ask for a position as governess. Then I could be in New York and get more ideas for stories. I've sold three stories now, and I'm sure I could get along... That's what I want to do, Mommy. I've got to get away. Mm, perhaps it would be best for both you and Laurie. 
Poor Lori. I feel as if I'm stabbing my best friend. Well, I want you to value your freedom till you tire of it. Because only then will you learn there is something better. Oh, thank you, Mommy. You see, I want action, not love. Mrs. Kirk and she gave me a position. I arrived in New York on a clear fall day and I felt the world was before me. My room was a skylight room with a simple bare table to work at. <laughs> Mrs. Kirk's children were a handful, but my evenings were my own and then I worked like a demon. At first I didn't speak very much to other people at the boarding house, but one day a man was playing a piano in the parlor. I stopped standing in the doorway, listening. He was an Austrian professor. Oh, excuse me. I did not see you. Oh, please don't stop. It's so beautiful. What's the name of it? I'd so love to send it to my sister Beth. The music is Tchaikovsky for a poem by Goethe. Nur werde Sehnsucht kennt, weiß, was ich leide. Nur werde Sehnsucht Oh, wait. I give you in English. <laughs> None but the lonely heart can know my sorrow. Alone and parted, far from joy and gladness, my senses fail. A burning fire devours me. None but the lonely heart can know my sadness. My senses fail. A burning fire devours me. He means... He means he can hardly bear the beauty in his heart because of his longing. That is it. And Tchaikovsky felt that as you feel it. And so he makes this music that is so heartbreaking and so beautiful. How oh, I wish I could write something like that. Something splendid that would set other hearts on fire. That is genius. It is not given to all that so divine gift. But you wish to write, my little friend? Yes, I do. That's my longing. And I'm not doing too badly. I've sold two stories since I've been here. That is good, good. Could I read them, perhaps? Oh, would you? I'd so love to have your opinion. I should be happy. You have the ardent spirit. I like that. Where have these two stories appeared? A magazine, The Weekly Volcano. <clears throat> weekly Volcano? I do not think I know this. You probably haven't come across it. You let me have the stories. I would love to read them. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Good morning, Mamie. Mamie, uh, are you going in to clean the professor's room? Try to. Kind of hopeless if you see what I mean. Uh, I see what you mean. Books, papers, pipes and old flutes. What's that half-finished boat over there? Something he was making for the kids. He's always making something. Come in, that's all right. Everybody walks in now to hear he likes it. Oh, no, no. I just wanted to leave my stories for him. Only I don't know where to put them. <laughs> They'd be lost in all this. Up there on the mantelpiece. You'll see them there. With these books? Sure. Shakespeare, Dante, Homer, Plato? 
I wouldn't dare. <laughs> oh, well, there they go. The weekly volcano, the Greek slave, or Constantine the Avenger, etc. <laughs> Look, the poor man. Why, he's been donning his own socks. Sure, there ain't nothing he don't do. Always working, always helping somebody. You know what he's doing here, don't you? No, what? We found out by accident. He's really a famous professor from the University of Vienna, mind you. And he left that and came over here to look after his two orphan nephews. Oh, what he don't do for those children. Such a good man. He'd probably be in some university here and he came not knowing much English, so he stays here and gives lessons. Mm, Mamie, give, give me a couple of those socks. He needn't know. I'll fix them up and you can slip them back when they're done. But, um, don't tell him, please. Not a word. Miss Ma? <coughs> Josephine Ma? <coughs> what is it, Mrs. Kirk? Some visitors here for you. Oh, yes, I'll be right down. They're in the parlor. Amy! <laughs> Joe! And Aunt Ma! Good afternoon, Josephine. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm so glad to see you. What a wonderful surprise. How did it happen? What's it about? Oh, I'm so happy. Joe, you look fine. And so do you, and you too, Aunt Ma. Stuff and nonsense. I don't do anything of the sort. I'm an old woman, and my bones are gouty. Why should I go around looking like a young chit? You do to me, Aunt Ma. Rubbish, utter rubbish. <laughs> How is Mommy and Father? And how is Bethy? Beth is better, but she's not as rosy as she used to be. Oh, why doesn't my Bethy get strong? I don't know. Joe, guess where we're off to? Where? Tell me. Europe. Europe. Oh, Amy, how wonderful. Yes, we're taking my old bones to Vichy to try the waters. I'm taking Amy for the trip. Also to look after you. Nonsense, I can look after myself. All I seem to do is to provide transportation for your impoverished family. Trips to Washington, trips to New York, trips to Europe. You're awfully good to us, Aunt Mark. Well, I don't mean to be. And it wouldn't be necessary if you weren't all so adult-pated. Meg gets married. She doesn't marry a poor tutor. Yes, she does. And you snub the wealthiest young man in town. Mark my word. Someday you'll all learn to take my advice. Maybe we will, Aunt March. Joe, did you see Laurie when he was here? Laurie? In New York? You mean he didn't come to see you? No, I never saw a sign of him. He went on a business trip with his grandfather. They're in Paris now. Maybe we'll see them there. But he'll be back home soon. Laurie in New York and never came to see me. Well, what do you expect, you willful girl, after the way you treated him? We were such good friends. He was awfully hurt, Joe, when you left. But he still loves you. Oh, Joe, if you just let him know, somehow I know he'd... No, no, Amy, it's nothing like that. Do you want to go in my place, Joe? You ought to, really, and then maybe you'd see him. And... Oh, no, of course not. I wouldn't think of it. Well, we have to be at the steamship office before it closes. Come, Amy. <laughs> Professor. Uh, Miss March, I have read these stories. You would like perhaps to discuss them? Oh, yes, I would like to. Come in, won't you? Good. You, you, um, look a little frightening. Did you like the stories? I must be honest. I was disappointed. You were? Now, this, uh, uh, uh what is it called? Uh... The Curse of the Coventries, Constantine the Avenger? Yes. Miss March. Why do you write these artificial characters? Villains, vipers, murderesses, witches. Oh, such women. Miss March, why don't you... Well, I... I... I try... Try to... Oh. I'm sorry. I did not mean to hurt you. 
What a blundering fool I am. Forgive me. Please, it isn't that. Don't pay any attention to me. It's just that I've made a mess of everything as I always do. But I never thought, Laurie... Well, I never thought he'd come to New York. Laurie, is this your very good friend? Yes, in a way. He came to New York and never even saw me. But then, why should he? I see. And then, on top of that, the professor comes blundering and makes things worse. No, no. If I can't stand the truth, I'm not good for anything. I didn't think the stories were very good. But the curse of the Coventries was the blessing of the marches. And Constantine the Avenger paid the butcher's bill. And the Duke's daughter is going to send Beth to the mountains next summer where she ought to be. And, and, and... That is what I have thought. And so I said to myself, maybe I have no right to speak. And then I have thought, no, I have no right to be silent. For look you, Miss March, you have talent. Oh, do you really think so? Otherwise, I would not say it. But be true to that talent. Sweep mud in the street before you cheapen it. While you are young, write about the things in your heart. The brave, simple things you understand now. And maybe later, when you know the weight of sorrow and on the human heart, then you can write of those poor, wretched murderers and make them live and breathe with your pen, as Shakespeare did. Look, I brought him for you. I give you this book. Between these covers is a whole library. Read it, and he will help you. Oh, thank you. I'll try. And you are not angry with the blundering professor who takes the wrong time for his lectures? No, I'm so grateful. And I'm happy that you would talk to me, Mr. March... I uh, sometimes get from a friend seats for the Academy of Music. Uh, Would you accompany me sometimes? Oh, oh, I'd love it. In the following weeks, we went out often together. To concerts, then to plays and museums and operas. Forgotten were the weekly volcano and the curse of the Coventries. But instead, I was suddenly filled with the beauty of Mozart, Beethoven, Rembrandt, and Leonardo. Filled. (laughs) And a little giddy, too, perhaps. I remember one evening as we came back late to the boarding house in the hall downstairs. (laughs) Oh, it is good to see you so flushed and happy. Oh, I've had a wonderful time, Professor. I've made up my mind. I've made up my mind. I've decided to be an opera singer. Wait, wait. Don't decide yet. (laughs) After the circus, you felt a bareback ride that was the most beautiful of all careers. (laughs) And after the museum, you decided to be a painter. But I'm going to be all of them, all of them. (laughs) Oh, Professor. Professor, you're fun to be with. I wish you could meet my family. They'd enjoy you. I keep writing them all about you. You do? Oh, yes, yes. And they always ask questions about you in their letters. Indeed? Oh, yes. For example, when... Why, look at that. A telegram for me. Mrs. Kirk must have left it here. Oh, no. My little friend, what is it? It's my sister, Beth. Mother says I, I, I must come home right away. I'm very sorry. Yes, I'll pack tonight. I'll leave on the morning train. What can I do for you? Well, you'll be busy with your lessons in the morning. But uh, when will I see you? You will be back? Well, I, I don't know, Professor. You see, 
The writing, the weekly volcano and all that, I burn those up. There's nothing left of all that work but ashes. All that is finished. And if I'm not going to write those, I... I can't really afford to live here. I can't tell you how all this grieves me. Professor. Professor, will you come and see us sometime? May I? Shall I? Yes, I want you to. Tell me, your sister and that friend in Europe, are they back yet? They're on their way, I think. I see. Yes. Um, this is awfully sudden, isn't it? Terribly sudden. Poor Beth. What do we hear from Amy, Mommy? She'll be home next month. Tell me something, Joe. What, Mommy? Would it hurt you terribly if you learned that Laurie had learned to care for somebody else? Amy? Well, I was only reading between the lines. Amy's letters have said a lot about Laurie, and we've had letters from Laurie, too, full of Amy. Laurie and Amy. Would it hurt you terribly? Wouldn't I be selfish if it did? Laurie and Amy. It's wonderful, isn't it, Mommy? It's it's right, isn't it? It's really fine. I hope you feel that way, because that's how I think it will be. Mommy was right. Laurie and Amy came back husband and wife, hilariously happy, knowing that they always really loved each other and always had been meant for each other. And they set up housekeeping in a beautiful little house nearby. Then there were just Beth and I. Sit with me, Joe. I'll never leave you, Beffy. Joe, you always reminded me of a seagull, fond of the wind and dreaming of flying far out to sea. <laughs> Mommy said, I was more like a cricket, chirping contently at home. I guess very soon I'll be home forever. Beth closed her eyes. She slept quietly, and she never woke again, and we laid her to rest. Then it was November. The snow fell quietly and gently in our town. Our house was very quiet. But soon there began preparations for another Christmas, and Meg and Amy, Brooke and Laurie were in and out. And I didn't know which was harder to bear, the loneliness or the laughter. I only know that I began to go for long walks. And sometimes I went up into the garret again, where I'd written my very first stories and wrote a few words. And one time I showed them to Mommy and Father. Why, dear, this is fine. It's Joe, so different. it's beautiful. Why, Father, you have a tear in your eye. It's so fine, Joe. But this isn't anything. It's nothing I've done. It's just... Everything about you and Mommy and Meg and Amy and Betty. Things I remembered you all saying and doing.
I sent it off and it was printed at once. And again I went tramping through the winter snow. Only the snow was turning to sleet and rain and the world was dismal. I was very, very lonely. Except that everywhere was the merriment of Christmas. And then, just a step from home... Miss Joe! Professor! Miss Joe, I come to see you. Oh, my friend, my friend. How did you know? How did you know I wanted to see you above all else? I said I would come. Yes, and you have. I hoped you would. But what do you do without any umbrella in this terrible weather? Here, come under mine. <laughs> I will. Here That's I it. Am. <laughs> it's turned to rain. And raining harder. Come, come to our, our house. It's just this way. Oh, Professor, how did you happen to come? I have been invited by a nearby college to discuss a position they offer me. Christopher Columbus, that's fine. Also, I read somewhere one of your stories. It made me feel you had found yourself and were no more restless and discontented. But my name wasn't on that story. It was about your family, no? Yes, it was. It was. You have told me of them, and that once I recognized them, and I knew it was you, a different you. That's right. Thanks to you, Professor. Oh, oh, I've missed you so. I've been so lonely for you. Is that true? Yes, Professor. Then, would it be possible? Yes, yes. Do, do you think... That you and I... Yes, Professor? Here, hold, uh, hold the umbrella over you. You are getting wet. I'm all right. Please go on with what you were saying, Professor. This is your house? Yes, this is our home, Professor. They are, they are making music inside. Yes, they're all together. Perhaps I'm through. No, no, please don't go. Don't go. Joe, Come in, Professor. Joe, before we go in... Yes, yes. I, I want to ask you. Yes, yes. Oh, how stupid of me. I, I, I meant to stop at some stores for presents for you and your family. And now, Joe, I come with empty arms. Not empty now, Professor. Joe, I love you. Heart, dearest. Welcome home. Theatre Guild production, Little Women. Presented by U.S. Steel and starring Katherine Hepburn. The United States Steel Corporation joins the Theatre Guild on the air in wishing every one of you a very Merry Christmas and hopes you'll be with us next week at the same time when we'll bring you Walter Houston in the musical play of Old New York, Knickerbocker Holiday. If you'd like program notes and cast lists of tonight's Theatre Guild on the air, prepared for each broadcast with information about the play and the players, simply address U.S. Steel Corporation, Radio Department, 
71 Broadway, New York 6, New York. The staff for the Theater Guild on the air includes Homer Fickett, director, George Condolf, producer, and Armina Marshall, executive director of the radio department. Music for tonight's play was composed and conducted by Harold Levy, and the play adapted for radio by Eric Barnum. Your announcer, Norman Brokenshire. The Theater Guild on the Air's version of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women from December 23, 1945. It brings us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight, but this is an important date in American musical history, and we don't want to let it go unmarked. Ninety-one years ago today, in Chicago, Illinois, Clarence Pinetop Smith recorded his classic Pinetop's Boogie Woogie for Vocalion Records. That disc did several things. First, it lent its name to a whole genre of music. Second, it was the precursor to dance records from the Madison to the Macarena with the Hokey Pokey thrown in. And finally, it's considered by many scholars to be the very first rock and roll record. From this date, December 29th in 1928, it's Pine Top Smith and Pine Top's Boogie Woogie. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, a safe and joyous new year, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody.
is around. That's what I'm talking about. Hey, little girl, you stand up with the red dress on. Back right up here at this piano where Mr. Pine Top is. That's right, face audience. Now, when I tell you to hold yourself, you get ready to stop. Yeah? I'm Jeffrey Katz, WAMU's News Director. WAMU is an essential public service here in the Washington region. Your year-end donation now ensures that WAMU can continue to serve you with exceptional quality, open dialogue, and a focus on telling diverse stories that matter. Be a part of WAMU now with your donation online at WAMU.org. Thanks. 